All day long I've been seeing that guy's weird face and hearing those fingernails. Fingernails? That's amazing you saying that. That made me remember the dream I had last night. What'd you dream? I dreamed about a guy in a dirty red and green sweater. Well, what about the fingernails? Oh, he scraped his fingernails along things. Actually, they were more like finger knives or something. Something he'd made himself. But they made a horrible sound. Nancy, you dreamed about the same creep I did. The kids of Elm Street are attacked in their dreams by a horrific vision, dredged up from the sins of their parents. Fearful of their lives, they try anything to stay awake, but nothing can save them from Freddy. Wes Craven's incredible monster movie concept became a smash hit, terrifying all 80s kids who saw Nightmare on Elm Street. In the process, Freddy Krueger became one of the most identifiable icons in popular culture. My name is Luke, and having a sleepover date with me are Matt. Hey Nancy, no running in the hallway. And Westy. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. One, two, ATRM are coming for you. Hello, one and all. This is God and this is All The Right Movies, a podcast on classic and hit films that will make you want to stay up all night. All night. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. On the show, we're talking about midnight baseball bats and boogeymen as we go behind the scenes on Wes Craven's horrific A Nightmare on Elm Street. True. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Before the nightmare, just a reminder about the exclusive content you can get if you become an ATRM Patreon supporter. Yes. This is episode 85, can you believe it? 85 of our classic podcast. Wowzers. Long time, long time. And only 20 of these shows are available on general release, meaning, obviously, if you're good at basic mathematics, that there are 65 podcasts not available on general release. They're in our podcast archive. Yep. Mm -hmm. Become an ATRM patron, you can get access to all of the films that we've covered on Classic. As well as that, there are over 50 podcasts that we've created exclusively for our patrons including new monthly episodes of our double feature podcast. There are loads of other benefits, and if you can support us, it would allow us to keep bringing these podcasts to you regularly, and it would be forever appreciated. Yes, it certainly would, guys. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yes, you can throw away the stay awake, fast-acting tablets, become an ATRM patron to be continually entertained. And continually yeah. awake. Yes. You'll not fall asleep yeah. to this. No, fall asleep. Asleep. Yeah. no, way. no way. Thank you, everyone. No. Thanks, guys. Okay, so why are we talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street? And I'm going to take the podium first, fellas. All right. Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Well, sounds Never like you've got to get something off your chest mm-hmm. here. This is like mm-hmm. therapy for you, I guess. <laughs> I have a very long and very, very troubled history with this film. Okay. We've got a question coming up where I'll go further into it, but suffice to say that this is the only horror film that truly terrifies me. Right. Right. Okay. It's very deep-seated. It haunted my dreams, kind of still does, and it kept me awake at night. I think it is one of the most effective horror movies ever made. I think it's a real touchstone in the slasher genre. It's Wes Craven on fire with one of the most memorable movie monsters ever created. There are a few things, I'm reluctant to say it, there are a few things that may fall apart under the ATRM microscope as the show progresses. Possibly. I would have thought so. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to your views on that as well. Yeah. It is very close to Halloween. 
and this film celebrates its 39th anniversary in a couple of weeks, so there was no other option. We have to talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street. We do. That famous 39-year anniversary <laughs> that everyone makes a big deal out of every time something gets to 39. 49 or 39. Ticket yeah, parade, yeah. get the banners yeah. out, thir- happy 39th. <laughs> yeah. We'll have a party. <laughs> okay, Westy, did you dream about the same creep I did when you first saw Nightmare on Elm Street? Unfortunately, I did. That's why yes. I haven't slept for the last 30 years, I think, in theory. <laughs> I first saw this at a sleepover. We all know the story. I was about 30 years old. My mum dropped us off. I didn't quite know the kid. He's like, come over mine. So there's me and my brother. And we had to sleep over. And the house was quite foreign. It was my first kind of sleepover in somewhere different. And it okay. was a very strange place. Didn't quite like it. And he's like, oh, we'll watch this. I've watched it. It's really good. So we'll put it on. And from the opening <laughs> really credits, just from the opening credits from the boiler room sequence, oh. I was like, nah, nah, yeah. I, I don't, nah, I don't like it. No. Don't like it. Don't like it. Retreat. Can't remember. Can't remember what bit I got up to. I don't want to remember what bit I got up to. But I remember phoning me mom, and I was welling up, and my lip was quivering on the phone. And I was like, you've just got to come and pick us up. You've just got to come and get us from here. <laughs> my mom came, picked us up. My brother left. I think he was enjoying it. I'm not too sure. But it was just... It was just too much. It was just too much. And it's still like quite local where he lives. And I go for a run now and again. And okay. every time I get to his street, I run a little bit faster. <laughs> 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 My pace does quicken when I pass his house. It's still there. It's still relevant <laughs> because it feels just like this film's just a little bit too real for me. It's got this mm-hmm. this, this element that, I, yep. that really taps into it. And even though I've watched behind-the-scenes documentaries, I've tried to just watch Robert England out the makeup. I've tried to just go, oh, it's Wes Craven. It's, there's something else. It feels like it's out of their control. It's it's a classic. It's an incredible film. It's a great concept. It's a great, great villain. It's impossible to talk about the horror genre without talking about it. So Agreed. I would love to say I'm excited, but um, I'm quite <laughs> rarely to step into it. So let's... Let's see if it still resonates now. Yeah, I'm, I'm fearful. Yeah. I am fearful. I, yeah. I, I, like you, Wesley, I can't see beyond the illusion, no matter how many nah. making of documentaries and behind-the-scenes article I read. Yeah. Oh, okay, Matt. Hmm. I'm your boyfriend now. Why do you want to talk about it? I'm in Elm Street. <laughs> That's a different film. <laughs> Go for it, Matt. I think there's just nothing else quite like this, is the, the way it gets under people's skins. And my personal connection to it is... I was too scared to watch it as a kid. I can vividly remember looking at the VHS in the rental shop yeah, and being like, no, no chance. <laughs> no on that. <laughs> the cover, reading the back, what it was about, I was like, absolutely not. Yeah, washing your hands when you put that. it down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Horrible. And then like kids at school would would have watched the sequels like yeah. in, in later years. Yeah, of course. Like the parents let them all the brothers and sisters and then my older sister she would go and see the sequels at the cinema and she'd come back and and tell me in great detail what the kills were like that's unfair and as a kid i was like no chance sorry like i can barely cope with clash of the titans (laughs) at the minute i'm not going anywhere near this one fair enough i was 25 years old (laughs) well that's it so a bit older than west he was in my 30s no um i was i was a teenager when i did see it for the first time I think it's fair to say that the legend that I'd built up in my head didn't quite match the reality of the film. Right. Yeah. But all the same, it's so iconic of the genre of the era and it's original as well, which it gets plus points for. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Uh, no doubt, listeners, you're in for one hell of a show. Too mm. right. A Nightmare on Elm Street was written and directed by Wes Craven, produced by Robert Shea for Smart Egg Pictures and Media Home Entertainment, distributed by New Line Cinema. 
released on the 9th of November 1984. It stars Heather Langenkamp as Nancy Thompson and Robert Englund as Fred Krueger. Mm-hmm. Support comes from Ronnie Blakely, John Saxon, Johnny Depp, Amanda Weiss, and Nick Corey, who all offer varying degrees of success in their performances, shall we yes. say. Yeah. <laughs> Are you ready for Freddy, fellas? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there's no, there's no choice. We're going into it. <laughs> Just remember one thing. Don't fall asleep. film starts as it means to go on, and we're in the thick of the action straight away, as we're dumped in the middle of Tina's boiler room nightmare. Mm. Mm. Matt, it's mm. over to you. Yeah, I mean, just the credits alone oh. worth talking about. Oh, I mean, yeah. Christ. Yeah. These credits, I mean, not just me, they really feel like they've influenced Seven, I feel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a huge yeah, influence nice. on Seven here. It's New Line as well. New Line as well. That New Line logo, when that comes in over the yeah. red. Even yeah. that? Whoa. That's enough? Yeah. That's enough? That's enough. It is. Stop. That's a skip to the end. <laughs> done. Yeah. I'm I don't done. want a font that's mismatched either. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's great about though is how abstract everything is. You know, you get close-ups of knives being sharpened, fingers yeah. coming into a glove. <sighs> and it does feel like a dream because nothing particularly flows here. You know, a sudden shot of Freddy's hand ripping through a sheet of fabric. Doesn't make any sense, but that's fine. It's a dream. The sudden appearance of a goat. Very random, yeah. and it sounds laughable when you see it, but really freaky when it just turns yeah, up awful. in the background. And that sheet yeah. looks like skin as well. It does. And then in amongst that, you've got like the heavy breathing coming from Freddy, that very brief mm. shot of his face, his long shadow stretching down the corridor, and in the middle of it all, this young girl who's just so out of place in all this. Yeah. So none of it makes sense, and like I say, that's what a dream is, and I think the sound design is incredible. Like yeah, the sound yeah, of those the nails way. scratching the along the yeah. metal. Tina's scream that merges into the goat shrieking. Incredible mm-hmm. stuff. I think maybe looking at now, the set design does look a little bit like kind of any heavy metal video from the 80s. Or, <laughs> Wrong with yeah. that? Yeah. Or like a really good laser quest that you went to in the 90s. Now you're talking amazing stuff. <laughs> yeah. Really effective opening. It's when that title comes in, mm. Nightmare on Elm Street, with the dread of that sound design. Yeah. yeah. Holy shit. And, and Freddy, when he flicks his fingers out. Yeah. 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 yeah, that always sends shivers for me. <laughs> Absolutely fucking terrifying. Yeah, awful. It was shot in the last week of film, and it wasn't Robert England. The hands, it wasn't hands by Robert England. Oh, right. It was his stunt double. It right. was, yeah. Uh, the boiler room used in the dream sequences was shot in an abandoned boiler room in Lincoln Heights Jail, East LA, and it was condemned mm-hmm. soon after film and wrapped due to asbestos insulating the pipes. So it was like obviously leaking while they were there, so I was yeah. breathing in asbestos for a few weeks. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I think Craven said that he could see little flecks coming out of the pipes and he thought, oh, I wonder if that's dangerous. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Very, it's a little very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of moments in the film that really resonate with me that are really deep-rooted, particularly near the start of the film and the moment where Nancy, Tina and Glenn are at Tina's is one of them. Right. On the face of it, this scene is so innocuous. It's just three high school kids having a good time. It's, mm-hmm. it's probably the most light-hearted of scenes. 
probably in the whole film, yeah. Yeah, but it just put the fear of God up me. I think that starts with Tina's dream that you were mentioning, Matt. You're on the edge of your seat for 90 minutes from that point for me. Yeah. But then Tina and Nancy are talking and their dialogue really sticks out. Nancy's saying they were more like finger knives or something, something he made himself. Mm-hmm. And Tina says, Nancy, you dreamed about the same creep that I did. And those words just ring around my head. They really resonate. Right. When they're saying that dialogue, I love the cut to Glenn as, as the girls are talking. At no point in the film does Glenn recognize or say that he's having bad dreams. No. Yeah. But we know he is based on this little look that he shoots over to Nancy and Tina when yeah. Nancy's yeah. talking about the dirty red and green sweater. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really great detail. And he has that line just saying, it's impossible, and then looks at the mm-hmm. window. Yeah. yeah. And he's yeah. going, nah, you think it's, he does, he's doubtful when he says it. Yeah. Of course he yeah. is. Of course he <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. And this was a practical location. It was a house in Venice, LA. And I think you can feel that just when you know, obviously you don't know for sure, but when you know, it kind of gives extra resonance, particularly when they go out in the garden. Because for me, this meant that it could happen to me. Like when I was watching mm-hmm. it when I was a kid mm-hmm. in my living room, you know, I'm watching Bigfoot and the Hendersons, something like that. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and if I hear a strange noise outside, it was Freddy. And that's the power of the yeah. film, particularly at a really young age, all yeah, relatable yeah. themes and, and situations. Yeah, and that scene you're talking about, Lagan Campbell said that Johnny Depp was very nervous. And in the scene at Tina's yeah. house, he was getting flustered by all the sound cues. So when Tina and I are laughing in that scene, we're totally laughing at Johnny. Yeah, because she said he was like really serious about his work. Yeah. And yeah. Um, Robert Englund said that he, he was the most polite man in the world. He called him sir for the first week of filming. Probably <laughs> wow. because he was terrified. I'm terrified of him. Probably, I'd call him I, sir. In, in full makeup, I yeah. would call him sir. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> It's supposed to be like relief though when he's listening to the sound effects on that, like yeah. calling his mom. Oh, yeah, yeah it's yeah, noisy yeah. as usual, and it's yeah. like, yeah, it's great. Oh, that's not funny, mate. No, <laughs> no, I'm not invested. <laughs> You're just delaying the inevitable here. Of course, Glenn, you are. Quite frankly, <laughs> Westy, what about you in this sequence? Yeah, that, I'm going to talk about the inevitable in this sequence oh. and how well it's staged. It's when, the, like you said, look when they go into the garden, and it just shows how well Craven is has got a hold of this and it's guiding you through it. And you don't want to go in the garden with them. And it's nope. just, it's the minimal cuts. Yep. It's just very, very slow paced. There's a lot of room, a lot of space to the right-hand side of the frame. So you're expecting mm-hmm. something to come in. Mm-hmm. It's played really well. You don't believe a word Glenn says when he says he's going to punch his lights out. No. No, you're not. <laughs> chow, chow, chow. Chow, chow, chow. Yeah. <laughs> he's absolutely crap. Yeah, he's really crap. <laughs> and there's just that cutback to Tina and Nancy and then straight back to him again. Mm-hmm. And it just very, very well played out. Very, very slow build. And honest to God, watching this again, that jump scare works so fucking well. It's, and it's the, it's it's the sound design. It's mm-hmm. above all else. I mean, you, you kind of know something's coming, but when it does, it it slams home. But then it's not really a threat, but at the same time, it's brilliant because it sets Rod up as kind of a threat. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sound design. I mean, every jump scare is met by this cacophony of noise and yeah. the sound that like just someone, makes it a million times worse. Like someone dropping yeah. a toolbox. <laughs> Rod's such a dick, isn't he? Taking down Glenn just three yards from the goal line. <laughs> what a prick. Absolute knob. <laughs> Kanicki from Wish. <laughs> Dime store Kanicki. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's appropriate at this point in the film that we ask our first Patreon question, considering the nature of the question. Okay. okay. If you become an ATRM Patreon supporter, you can get the chance to be in the hot seat. So, you mm-hmm. know, what are you waiting for? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Sign up. This question comes from Andrew Shaw. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Andrew says, this was very nearly the first horror film that I ever saw. 
He says that The Exorcist on network TV very memorably being his first. Oof, what a bang wow. bang. Oh, left, right. Yeah, never sleep again. Too right. And Andrew asks, what was the first capital H horror film you remember seeing? And mm. also the circumstances, if you can recall them. Matt. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure it would have been Halloween. Um, oh, nice. Great. Certainly wasn't The Exorcist or Texas Chainsaw. No. no it was not <laughs> No. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Halloween. I can just vividly remember the title sequence. Okay. Really early age being Terrifying. freaked out by that. In terms of circumstances, I think I was. it was probably one of those nights where the parents out saw either me brother or me sister was in charge. And they were like, yeah. well, I want to watch it. So you can either go to bed or you can watch it and get terrified. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's the latter option. <laughs> and uh, how old would you have been, Matt? Seven, I think. Oh, Seven or eight. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. A Nightmare on Elm Street was the first horror film that I saw as a kid, which is why it's had such a profound effect on me, no doubt. Mm, no doubt. It's probably the reason why I'm such a fan of the horror genre. And I've been trying to put the pieces together of how old I was. This was in the middle of the VHS boom in the 80s. We had a load of new releases at home. Loads of Disney stuff, Indiana Jones, Mm -hmm. Ghostbusters, you know, Evil Dead, Elm Street, all the classics. Everything a grown boy needs. (laughs) (laughs) And that set me on my path. And I have got a date later that I can kind of work back from. I remember getting Nightmare Part 3 bought for me when I went shopping with my mother to the supermarket. And doing a bit of research, the version that I had came out in 89. It was Packaged in 89. Lovely. So I would have been eight or nine at the time. Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ. And by that point, I mean, come on, mother. What are you thinking of? (laughs) Mother, what are you thinking of? Better off having Nancy's mother. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I mean, by that point, so I was eight or nine. And by that point, I obviously knew enough about Elm Street to know that I wanted part three on my shelf. So by that reckoning, I was seven years old when I first caught a glimpse of this film. Holy shit. Too much. That's too, too much. That's too much. Well, I've got two older brothers who made me watch the sleep clinic scene where Nancy pulls the hat out of the right, dream. Right, oh, right, okay. Yeah. And needless to say, I, you know, scarred for life. Mm-hmm. And I think I watched the whole film soon after. Yeah. Um, but looking at it as an adult, I just don't think I should have been subjected to something like this at you that know, age. I don't really think so. And to do the whole film as well, that's quite rare. Because when you're that age, you're like, I watch bits of it and I remember yeah. bits of it. But to do it in one sit and start to finish. Hmm. Something brought me back. Yeah. Something made yeah. me want to come back wow. to it. When I didn't know much about anything at all in the world at that age, I'm taking on this information. I know. It's too What's much, going man. On? It, it, mm-hmm. I mean, it explains quite a bit. Yeah. Doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> Doesn't it? All the pieces are falling into yeah. place. I know. We should have done this in like the second episode, not the 85th. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is why I'm petrified of Nightmare. I always knew there'd come a time that we'd cover it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. I've been very apprehensive about it. And it, to be honest, it hasn't been the best of weeks for me. <laughs> no. uh, yeah, I can tell, mate. I know. What about you, Westy? First horror film and the circumstances surrounding it? My first one was Night of the Living Dead. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was Classic. a Sunday night. Come back from my nan and granddad's house. And it was on Channel 3, I think, or BBC 2 or one okay. of the channels. And my dad was yeah. like, oh, this is great. You're going to love this. Huh? And I think it was like my first 
black and white film as well that I'd oh, seen. Right. And he was like, this is a classic. Me dad was here, mm. but it's a good film. It's a classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we sat and watched, and I, I remember thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it. I don't remember being scared to the point where I was like, oh my God, it was mm-hmm. a little bit over my head. But yeah, that was that was the first one for me. And I think that's why I love really slow paced black and white films now. <laughs> 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 but yeah, last, uh, yeah, Night of the Living Dead for me. And how old were you, roughly? I would have been about, yeah, about seven or eight. 80s parenting wow. and its finest. Yeah. You love this. Yeah. <laughs> you love this. I mean, that bought Creep Show for us on VHS the next week, I think. Great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you like that? Last house on the left. Get it in there, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you like airplane. It's got him in it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> oh, so I think we can all agree a terrifying opening, and it's not going to let up anytime soon. No, no it's, it's just going to get worse. Before our next sequence, Jungle Man fixed Jane upstairs, and Glenn isn't too happy about it. Morality sucks. Yeah. <laughs> All is well until Tina is awoken by a strange noise outside. Mm. Mad it's over to you again. Yeah. I mean, this scene. Ugh. What I love about this scene is that there's no immediate giveaway that we're in the dream sequence here. Yeah. Like, yeah. Stone's hidden off the window, someone's saying a name, but that's it. That could easily happen in reality. And the first clue is actually kind of subtle, the fact that one of these little stones manages to get stuck in the window. Yeah. Because, you know, it's kind of plausible, but equally it's quite strange. Mm-hmm. It still breaks the veil of reality, though, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Nice. Just, just so that like, little ooh, first mm-hmm. prod, yeah. And the fact that she doesn't rake Rod up either, which you yeah, think, yes. well, you would absolutely do that in reality. Yes. yes. Yeah. You know, and it, it's like an opening dream in that it is slightly abstract. You know, we cut from the bedroom and then she's downstairs. And then I think another small clue is when she gets outside in the garden and then in the alley, it starts to sound like the factory, like the noises, those industrial noises yeah, start yeah. coming back in. So all very small clues that hints that something's not quite right, which only gets confirmed when Freddie shows up. Mm-hmm. And that in itself, again, it's quite abstract. The, the big silhouette of his face, like cast in shadow, it's deliberately confusing, and then you think, mm-hmm. okay, he can now appear wherever he wants. And yeah. as well as that, it has that classic thing of when you are having a nightmare, you can never run fast enough, can you? No. no. Not, no. That's the no. scary thing about any nightmare, if you're trying yeah. to run mm-hmm. away from something. But you can't. You're always going slow. <laughs> you're going always slow. going slow. Always Too going slow. slow. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. I'm far from a huge fan of the extended arms. And I think, <laughs> I mean, is anyone? And I think when yeah. Freddie runs, he unfortunately does look quite comical. But okay. overall, it's an extremely effective way of setting up what's coming next. And I think with those arms, it's worth pointing out they had two guys off camera pulling at fishing rods to extend them outwards. And then yes. the sparks on Freddie's glove, that was achieved because they hooked it up to a car battery. Which, yeah. you yeah. know, might have killed someone, but, you know, let's, let's, let's <laughs> yeah, go with that. Yeah, it's worth a try. Know, it, looks, budget. it looks great. Yeah. yeah, it does look great, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the extended arms, mm. the religious imagery, the music. Yeah. Traumatic, really, <laughs> for me. Yeah. It, it, just the way he's laughing through it, it cuts to that extreme close-up to that wide. That extreme. Yeah. When, when, when you want to see a close-up, he goes wide. When you want to, mm. you want to see a wide shot, he goes for a close-up. Yeah. So he knows yeah. what you don't want to see. Yeah. And also, when Freddy appears from behind the tree, that was a yeah, split oh, mirror oh, shot. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's so yeah. good. So you've got the tree on the left and nothing else in the frame. And then they yeah. overlaid the same shot, but with England in it, and then they spliced the two together. 
Oh, yeah, brilliant. I mean, it's so effective. It is so effective. And there's that awesome music cue that comes that well, you can hear it all the way through the film. But when he pops out from behind the tree, mm. pops out. Um, <laughs> Hello, hi, <laughs> Tina. <laughs> and it's kind of like a backwards off-key clock chime. Tina. Watch this. Oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah, sends yeah. a shiver. Really puts you off kilter. Yeah. The shot that really gets me, though, in the opening of this film is when mm. Nancy's asleep. She takes a crucifix off the wall. Mm. She's kind of settling down. And you just get that rumble, that rumble of music. And mm. you just see this shape above her just come from nowhere. <sighs> and I'm like, it's amazing. What? How the fuck did they do that? Yeah. They just went out and bought a massive sheet of spandex, stretched mm-hmm. it over a wooden frame, mm-hmm. and then just poked the way through it. Yeah. Incredible. And obviously it's beautifully lit from the top and you can see it's picking up the light as we're leaning forward. But that's actually Mm -hmm. Jim Doyle leaning forward. That's his face in there. It's not England. But that's all practical. That's all in camera. I always thought that wasn't. That would have cost $20. Well, Craven said it cost 10 cents. (laughs) 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 Absolutely insane. But what nails that scene home is when it cuts back to it and then Nancy puts the cross back on the wall. Nancy knocks. And knocks on it. It's solid. solid. It's brilliant. Brilliant. And if you've seen the remake, there's do a similar shot. It's obviously CGI. Yeah. It looks god awful. It is terrible. I think this is a ballsy move from Craven, to be honest, because Tina is set up from the beginning. She's the first face that we see. This Mm -hmm. must be the heroine of the piece. Yeah. But like Scream, Craven tricks the audience. And Tina's so horrifically tormented for 17 minutes before she's bumped off. Mm. And I think Amanda Weiss is very memorable. I think she's built a career on four scenes at the start of this low budget film 40 years ago. Yeah, she's very good. I think that's all down to her performance. I think she's great. Mm. Yeah. But this scene was so shocking when I was young, and it still is. She's all of a sudden in the bed, and Freddie's under the covers with her, Mm -hmm. and Rod's there, and then he pulls the covers, and Freddie's not there. Mm. What is happening? Yeah. Weiss sells the shit out of that scene. Can't see Freddy, but we can hear his dirty, deep breaths as he's dragging her all over the room. And Tina screams on top of that. It's in the running for one of the greatest movie death scenes of all time for me. I think so. I mean, it is. It's incredible. And there was some unusual inspiration for this one, shall we say, because (laughs) there's a Fred Astaire film called Royal Wedding. And that uses yeah, a yes. revolving set. And that's what gave them the idea. So obviously not as scary, not a lot of blood sure. in that one. But if you do check yeah. it out, you will understand the reference. Yeah, I know the I know the scene that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, Matt. I know that. But who watches that and goes, well, let's, yeah, do let's, this. let's kill some teenagers. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what the scene needs? Needs yeah. some disembowelment. <laughs> Amanda Weiss suffered from vertigo as a result of being constantly spun around and upside down. Weiss said mm. that the terror in that scene was 75% real. <laughs> <laughs> I can account for 25%. 25, yeah. I'm having fun, but yeah. I'm in control of that. <laughs> yeah. Special effects designer Jim Doyle came up with a revolving set. He said, Wes said we needed to have a fantastic hook at the end of the first reel. Yeah. So I pitched him the rotating room as a good way to kill Rod's girlfriend. He thought it was nuts. We had no budget. And I said to him, well, what if we kill Heather's boyfriend using the same set? Craven was on board with that. Absolutely. Right, yeah. Brilliant. So Craven said the revolving room that was a real puzzle to construct, they bolted two racing car seats to the wall, one for the cinematographer and one for Craven, Mm. and they were in five-point harnesses, so they're kind of like just bouncing around the room. Amazing stuff, that. Wow. Yeah, and they nailed everything down, including like the lighting set up so the shadows didn't move when the set revolved. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And Nick Corey was strapped to a chair. 
which is why he can't move. Yeah. No, yeah. Which explains him not trying to save Tina. No, exactly. Not trying to pull her down, just going, Tina. <laughs> no. After all that's happened, best thing for me is the introduction of John Saxon. Oh, yes. Which is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful a solid thing. pair of hands. Actually, I just want to see somewhere that's lit really bright. <laughs> <laughs> relative safety. In relative safety with a door on it and with other people around. It's absolutely fine. But the great thing about this is the delivery from Saxon and the way it just seems about the relationship that he's got with Marge as opposed to what he's believing Nancy's saying. Because the way he walks in and he's like, Marge. Marge. <laughs> so good. It's fucking excellent. I'm like, that's probably the funniest bit in the whole film. Yeah. What a put down. He's like, you're supposed to be looking after her. So here I am. What's she doing here? He's not bothered about this guy's death. He's not bothered about how he's died. No. He's just bothered that Nancy was involved. Yeah. And it's just the way that he's talking to Marge when he's describing the scene. He's like, what you doing? Shack up the three kids in the middle of the night. And he's looking straight at Marge. And then he mm-hmm. turns around to Nancy and then addresses finally when he talks about Rod. Just a wonderful delivery from Lagenkamp when she just talks about the dreams mm. and it starts getting really creepy. And the yeah. best thing about the whole scene is that there's no argument from the parents. They kind mm-hmm. of just shut the fuck up and they go mm. and look at each other and they're like, mm. something else going Shit. on here. And then yeah. it just yeah. fades to black. It's so realistic, but it's not realistic at all. Mm-hmm. Because they would be going, no, don't be silly, right? We're taking you here. We're going to get you looked after. Yeah. There's this happening. You've suffered a shock. You've suffered a trauma. No, it's just don't go to school tomorrow, basically. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it. But you kind of buy into it. But I just love that adult angle and how this sequence, although it does seem throwaway, just shows how useless and pointless and helpless the adults are in this film. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so a blistering opening 20 minutes. Yeah. Jump scares and excruciating tension, all at the hands of the man of our dreams. Yep. Definitely. The director. Horror maestro Wes Craven is the man behind the mystery, the master of the macabre. Yeah. He established his horror movie chops in the previous decade with tales of terror like The Last House on the Left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen it, don't, don't bother. Don't, don't bother. Don't, don't yeah. bother. Horrific. Yeah. Take everyone's word for it. And he also did The Hills Have Eyes later in the decade. Mm-hmm. He did. But he was in the middle of his own nightmare before Elm Street. Mm-hmm. Westy. What yes. do you think of his work on A Nightmare on Elm Street? I think his work on A Nightmare on Elm Street is exceptional. It yeah. truly is exceptional. It's it's the ultimate and definitive Wes Craven film, raving about Craven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's what he does so well. I mean, he's such a sweet man as well. I mean, I love the guy, but I hate his output to the point where it really fucking freaks us out. And I don't understand how it can come from that guy. How well he knows where to put the camera, he knows how to do a mid, he knows how to do a wide, he knows how to do a close-up, and the most importantly, he knows how to cut between them. And I think mm-hmm. before he directed anything, he was known as a really, really good editor, and he got yes. a lot of editor, editing jobs, and he just kind of put things together for people, and you can see that, and I think he crafts his films that way. And I think there's a special shout-out here to Jack Haken, who's the cinematographer on this. Without doubt. Whose work on this is fantastic. It is. Mm-hmm. For an 80s horror film, it really, really stands up. Yes. But it's what Craven does, and he's looking for that attention to detail, even in dialogue sequences. Mm. Builds tension in dialogue sequences. Exposition is moving the tension along. It's not moving yes, it the is. story along. The no. story's done. It's, mm-hmm. a, guy, yeah, it's a guy who kills children, and he, he's coming after him with dreams. There's no more story. Yeah. After that, you've <laughs> just got tension. Mm. What's going to yes. happen next? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all he does is build that with exposition, with dialogue, with camera movements, with characters, with their motivations, and he knows exactly what he's doing. And he does it really well. It feels like you're in safe hands, but it's hands you don't want to be in. And I think that's the best way I can describe Wes Craven. Very good. What I like is that the film is just crammed full of iconic scenes and imagery in the genre. 
a great final girl, the ultimate villain. Mm. And somehow Craven manages to package it all up into like a breathless 90 minutes. Yeah. yeah. In the first 20 minutes, we've just talked about the first 20 minutes so far, he does what a lot of horror directors have been trying to do their whole career, trying and failing to do their whole career. Yeah. Mm. It's one iconic moment after another, leaving absolutely no room for filler or extraneous details, just like you've been saying there, Westy. Mm. There's a backstory for Kruger, but we don't get that until the final act. Yeah. We're establishing the facts at the same time that Nancy is really, and there's no time to ask questions because we're frozen stiff with fear. For a long time, yeah, we don't even know this guy's name. Yeah. And we don't even know what his motivation is, who he is, what he's up to. So that, along with the nightmare logic, helps to reinforce just complete disorientation from the viewer's point of view. Yeah. And Craven does so well at balancing all of this. Enough exposition to keep us intrigued, plenty of scares, and a really creepy atmosphere, and characters we care about. Well, some. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And getting all this done on just over a million dollar budget. It just blows me away. We've just talked about the howling on our Patreon double feature episode. Yeah, yeah. That had 700,000 more in the budget, and this is 700,000 times more professional and frightening. Yes. Yeah. And the lean storytelling is echoed in the budget. The film was shot in June and July of 1984. 34 days. 34 days, yeah. Outrageous. And released in November. <laughs> what yeah. a turnaround that is. Yeah, Four months later. Out. Even when we're talking about the effects, like that spandex effect of Freddy over the top, they got in in the morning and they said, well, how are we going to shoot this? <laughs> oh, I've got an idea. Slapdash. Yeah. yeah, let's go and, I've got this. Let's just try this. And it worked. It's like, oh, that's God, how, it, that's worked, how it was. It worked a treat. It worked a dream, Wesley. Yeah. More films should be. Oh, very nice. <laughs> yeah. See that? <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> and what about you, Matt? Craven on this? I think what he's done is he's come up with a concept that's so visually driven because of what that concept is. That to me is the most important element and he's got to nail it 100%. And I think he does do that. And in particular, I think it's the way that he transitions between reality and dreams. Because if you go back to like past eras, how many times would a dream sequence be signaled by wavy lines coming over or the character's (laughs) face would start spinning around the screen and you'd get that like glissando harp music over the top of it. Yeah. (laughs) We're going into dream now. We're going into dream. (laughs) (laughs) like just the yognauts yeah exactly exactly that and like i can't say for certainty that craven is the first not to do that i'm sure he's probably not if we go back far enough but he does ignore it and because he does Mm. it's really effective so when you have tina's first dream after you get that slow-mo shot of the kids skipping reciting the freddie rhyme at first glance you think slow-mo kids singing the rhyme they look slightly out of place this is another dream isn't it definite dream sequence Mm -hmm. But then the car with Nancy pulls up and it goes to normal yes. speed. And I, oh no, I'm in reality after all. That slow-mo was yes. just slow-mo. So it wrong puts you all the time, like the skill sequence, where we slip from reality in a dream so subtly there. And again, Nancy asking Glenn to watch over as she sleeps. You're pretty sure it's a dream because you got the fog rolling in. But then Glenn is in the dream following us. You think, well, am I still in reality? Maybe not. <laughs> And yeah. I think if Craven doesn't get those moments right, if he makes it super obvious what's happening, it's going to dilute everything. And so mm-hmm. much of this film depends on you as the audience being like, I'm not sure what I'm watching here and, and anything yeah. could happen. It, it's yeah. so well done. Craven had had a couple of notable films under his belt at this point. We mentioned The Last House on the Left and The Hills of Eyes. They gained notoriety and critical success enough for him to pick up easy paychecks on TV movies like Stranger in Our House and Straight to Hell. Mm. Yeah. But those opportunities dried up and he was on the bones of his arse. He had developed a coke addiction. He'd lost his house, he'd lost his wife, and had to borrow money to pay his taxes. 
but he had this amazing idea. Mm. The amazing idea, I mean, the script was floundered around Hollywood for about three years, getting rejection yeah. after rejection from all the major studios, just saying mm. this just isn't going to work, we don't get it. Mm-hmm. So Craven even had a rejection letter from Universal framed on his office wall, and mm. it reads thus, <laughs> and I have it written down, we have reviewed the script you have submitted. Unfortunately, the script did not receive an enthusiastic enough response from us to go forward at this time. However, when you have a finished print, Please get in touch, and we'd be delighted to screen it for a possible negative pickup. <laughs> <laughs> what a kick in the balls that is! Yeah. <laughs> I hope he sent them a print <laughs> after it made the money back in the first weekend. Yeah. There's your print, dickhead. Print this. <laughs> yeah, so he was having no luck, but then finally, Robert Shea, who had just kind of set up. New Line Cinema gave Wes Craven his chance and this was New Line's fourth film but mm. at the time they were actually on the brink of bankruptcy and Bob Shea had to beg, borrow and basically steal to come up with the goods. All the investors pulled out at some point and one of the investors included Bryanston Distributing Company and if yeah. they oh, sound yes. familiar that's because if you remember mm-hmm. from our Texas Chainsaw episode they had funded yeah. that and they were also very randomly, but they had like deep links to the mob. Yeah. Maybe yeah, weren't the yeah. type of people you wanted to get in bed with. <laughs> no, definitely not. No. And in the end, 50% of the funding came from some random guy from Yugoslavia who just wanted to get his girlfriend in the movies. Nice. Yeah. I mean, those issues continued in production as well with people not being paid on time, people not being paid at all, mm. and funding being pulled. They almost had to shut down production a few times before money came through. Yeah. Yeah. Kruger's iconic red and green sweater was originally red and yellow. This was a tip of the hat to DC's comic creation, Plastic Man. Right. He has similar powers to Kruger. He can shapeshift and transcend his physical space. Okay. You know, obviously I'm an expert. In- yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't heard of Plastic <laughs> Man, fan. to be fair. Like, I've never heard of Plastic Man. <laughs> yeah, it's a deep cut. Okay. But after reading in Scientific American magazine that red and green are the two colours that most contrast to the human eye, Craven changed Kruger's wardrobe completely. And the guy in charge of the makeup effects for Freddy, he was called Dave Miller, and Craven told him Kruger needed to be an old and terrifying burn victim, in his words. And the original look was going to be melted flesh literally falling off Freddy's face, which would expose his jaw and would say part of the skull was missing. But mm. Miller, in research, he looked at actual Burns victims, like their pictures, and he pointed out, well, there's no way he'd end up looking like that. So Craven yeah. changed it to emphasize the scarring with the muscle and sinew underneath the flesh instead. And Miller was struggling for inspiration until he was eating pepperoni pizza one night, and that was like the big eureka moment for him, make it look like pizza. Pizza face. Yeah, That's pizza crazy face. that it wow. came yeah. from that. Yeah. yeah. You can see, though. Yeah. It does, <laughs> You can, yeah. It does, though. It does. Yeah. And Craven said that all the modern horror movie monsters had masks and no personality, which was in contrast to his favourites like Dracula and Frankenstein. Mm. They were also played by real actors, not faceless stuntmen. Yeah, because he was initially looking at, like, big hulking brutes for yeah. the role of Freddy, yeah. like, massive guys. Yeah. And that's what, you know, Jason is. Yeah. Played by a stuntman. Craven took inspiration from a, a few different sources. Firstly, Polanski's The Tenant and Repulsion for the dream sequences. Mm-hmm. And for the monster in the shadows, uh, F.W. Murnau's classic Nosferatu. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yes, Craven, the quintessential horror helmer, making one of the most memorable entries in the genre. Absolutely. The cast. The cast of A Nightmare on Elm Street, if you've got a problem with the film, it'll likely be with some of the cast members. <laughs> likely, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. But we're starting off with the main cast. Matt, it's over to you. 
I'm going to go with Heather Langenkamp because I think when you consider, like we've just been through, how kind of chaotic this production was, seemingly falling apart left, right, and center every other day. Yes. Shot and did you say it was 34 days? Yeah, 34 days. She's got a lot on her shoulders. She very much. She has to carry this film, and I think she does carry it mm-hmm. indeed. I agree. I really like this performance from Langenkamp. But the flip side of that is, in a way, she's on a hiding to nothing, really, because, you know, we talk about the final girl in these types of films, and it always feels to me like it's not until Scream came along that someone went, hang on, let's just write these characters with a bit more thought. Yes. Give them a bit more backstory, a bit more motivation, give them a bit more to do than running from A to B to C and screaming every 10 minutes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I, I think Lagenkamp has the same issues that Jamie Lee has in Halloween. Yeah. Yes. That... Yeah. Olivia Hussey has in Black Christmas. Mm-hmm. She yeah, can only much. do so much with the watches given. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and she does do a lot with it. Like say, she's really likable. I don't think she necessarily has the star quality that you can see with Jamie Lee Curtis, which is mm-hmm. fair enough. Yeah. But she's easily better than pretty much any final girl you can pick out of the Friday the 13th films, for example. Yeah, I would agree with that. And you know, the character, she has smart, she has bravery, but again, it, it's just one of the issues in the writing, which I'm sure we'll get into, you know, how much outside of Kruger do any of the characters really stand out? They're yeah. kind of just interchangeable with any from the genre. You've got the jock, you've got the father who's the sheriff, you've got the alcoholic mother, the yeah. cheerleader, and Nancy is part of that. So not Lagenkamp's fault whatsoever. It is just what it is. Yeah. I think Lagenkamp probably does the best out of everyone in filling out a pretty thin part. Yeah, I, I do think she's uh, very memorable. And I think, yeah, she's a product of her time and mm. the circumstances surrounding the genre that she's in. Yeah. She wasn't so much of an unknown actress. She'd started in a movie of the week. She had some ads under her belt. So she had, a, a you know, some experience. She was mm. only 19, 20 at the time of filming. Mm. I mean, that's a lot to put on the shoulders of a it teenager. Is. Absolutely. I mean, who's that good an actor or actress at that age? Exactly. Very, yeah, very few. Only very few. Very few. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Lagenkamp said that Nightmare is a feminist movie, but I look at it more as a youth power film, which I agree, okay. totally agree with. People love that mm. she's a girl, but Nancy doesn't think of herself as a girl. She's just like, I need to save my friends. I need to see what's going on. I need to figure this out. And I kind mm. of get that from the character as well. Yeah, well, I think that taps in very nicely to our second Patreon question. Right. Okay. Yes, yes. And this question comes from Colleen. Hello, Colleen. How are you doing? Hello, Colleen. Hello, Colleen. Colleen says, Nancy's got to be one of the most iconic final girls of all time, and she's my personal favourite. Okay, Understandable? Yep. Mm -hmm. Colleen asks, what specific qualities or abilities make her an excellent foil for Freddy in particular, and how do you guys think she would fare against Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees? Thanks. Hey, no problem, Colleen. Thanks for the question. question. Great question. Mm -hmm. Westy, what do you think? I think what you need and what you do get from Nancy is self-reliance. Self-esteem, self-belief, mm. yes. intelligence. She's creative. Mm. She's inquisitive, but she's not rushing into things. And there's no interest in sex, which is obviously really important. Very important mm. in the eighties. She's yeah. got other things to think about, other things to worry about. But she mm-hmm. just wants to solve the problem and figure it out. She's consistently through this film wanting to figure out what the problem is, and she doesn't really show any fear of the problem. She confronts it head on. And the way that she solves the problem is turning her back on it and not believing in it anymore. And she's got the intelligence mm. to do that. And I think she would mm-hmm. be absolutely perfect against any 80s horror foil, to be fair. Yeah. I think she's got the chops to do it. She's got the intelligence to do it. She's got the booby trap know-how to take out anyone. So Fantastic. absolutely, for me, she's brilliant. Yeah, I think it's a, a great bit of casting from Craven, to be honest. Um, Nancy is an all-American sweet girl next door, non-threatening with a warm heart. 
And I think that Langenkamp really portrays that well. Yeah. But we'd also track her transformation into this kind of badass booby trap setter. And mm. the, I don't think there's a misstep in all of that. I think all the beats are believable. Yeah. I think her line delivery sometimes misses the mark, to be quite yeah. honest. Yeah. Mm. But her, I, I do prefer it to Laurie Strode uh, yeah. as a character and a performance. Yeah. And to answer Colleen's question, I think Nancy becomes an adult by the end of the film. Mm-hmm. She faces her fears instead of carrying away the only one who is brave enough to do so. And I think she actually gains strength from Freddy, which links into the end when she takes his power away by turning her back on him. Yeah. Mm. And Craven purposely wrote that scene in with Nancy tucking her mother into bed to show the role reversal of the two characters. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah mother to daughter, daughter to mother. Yeah. And it exemplifies her strength of character. She has to step up to the plate because no other bastard is going to. Nah, not no, it has no. to be her. Yeah. And up against Mike Myers, Mike Myers, obviously not. Every time. <laughs> Every single time. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Shagadelic. <laughs> Machine gun job, please. <laughs> Do it every time. Yep. And up against Myers and Voorhees, because I think Freddie is much more of a formidable four than those guys. I think she'd do very well for herself because, like you said, Westy, very resourceful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Laurie just happens to find the knife in the court hanger at the end of Halloween. Yeah. Nancy yeah. actually makes shit explode. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Okay, Matt, what about you? Yeah, very similar, really. She's just smarter than everyone. Mm. And she's got this little kind of layer of steel underneath her. You know, the fact that she, you know, she basically kicks Glenn's ass throughout the film. Gets <laughs> yeah. him to do what? Like, you know how many other films have, like, the boyfriend take charge? Yeah, yeah, good point. Glenn never does. Yeah. It's, it's, always, it's always Nancy. She's smart enough to realise when she's in a dream and when she's in reality, which no one else really does. Mm-hmm. And she realises when she's in a dream, she knows how to wake herself up, you know, yeah. burning her arm during the school sequence. Yeah. And also smart enough to know that Freddie will be weaker if she can pull him into reality. So she has that, that Freddie struggles to fight against. And then when it comes against... Miser for he's it's just exactly what you guys say. She's got the DIY skills, you know. Yeah. She, she builds traps like Kevin McAllister, so I think she would just brilliant have the, have them all over the house. Yeah, yeah. So great, much. Colleen. Thank you very much for the question. Yes, thank you. Great mm-hmm. question, much Colleen. Much appreciated. Yes. Westy, who have you picked out in the cast? Who would you think? <laughs> <laughs> fucking what a performance this is from Mister Robert England. He's having yeah. a fucking great time ah he loves it which means i'm having a bad time (laughs) (laughs) oh god it's so theatrical and it's just so fucking moist and slippy it's so fucking (laughs) repellent and crawly god he's such an arsehole but god it's so well played he relishes this role you can see he's relishing this role and he's got massive influence from Klaus Kinski, like we've said, from Nosferatu in 79. Yeah, yeah. But he also yeah, said, yeah. like, Jimmy Cagney, when he put the hat on, he had that kind of Cagney confidence Brilliant. and that kind of mm, swagger, yeah. that gangster swagger. And there's that sidestep that he does, as if he said he's like a surfer on a surfboard, so he's got infinite kind of balance. But he, again, what a lovely guy when you see him interviewed. It's the same I as Craven. It's like he's just put this on. And he said, like, when he saw Lagenkamp, when he saw Depp getting their makeup on, and he said he's getting basted with a turkey baster of all this kind of <laughs> shit on his face. He's like, look at them. They're so youth- youthful and beautiful. And he's like, well, no, I can use this as a shorthand mm. for Freddy. I can use this to get into character. And Brilliant. you can see he's having a great time with it. It's too much. To, to be honest, I mean, I'm trying to pick it up because I don't want him to visit us tonight. <laughs> Westy. Westy. 
but it is a, it's a wonderful, wonderful performance. Really beautifully done physically. And also his line delivery is just brilliant because it's so hammy and his voice is just right. And he has very limited dialogue, but what he does with it is make every single line memorable. It's impossible to forget Robert England after this. It's impossible it to forget this character after this. And I don't really think this would be the film it is without him playing this part. I agree. No, really elevated. Yeah, totally. I mean, he's just the ultimate boogeyman, isn't he? Yeah. He's completely out of control, impenetrable. And the worst mm. part of it is he shows you how much of a good time he's having yeah. at your expense. Yeah. yeah. The Freddy Glove was designed by Jim Doyle, who was given a sketch of one finger by Craven as a concept. Yeah. Craven conceived of Kruger as an ancient demonic force and thought the combination of a human hand with the weapon of ancient qualities would add to Freddy's essence as a kind of primeval spirit. Yeah. Mm. And Craven also added in his fear of his own cat's claws for good measure as well. Yeah, and Doyle's instructions were to make it look like, just make it look like something an old man is, is knocked up in his basement. Mm. And he actually came up with three different versions of it. So the first one's made of wood. The second one was made of rubber, and the third, which is the the hero glove, that was the real thing. That was the one made with actual knives. And because it's actual knives, as you might expect, it proved quite hazardous on set yeah. and mm. could have been deadly because yeah. people were trying it on because you'd, you'd want to. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Of yeah. course you would. But everyone who did ended up cutting themselves in some way, including Robert England. And the sheer weight of it actually weighs England's hand down, which he can see in his stance at times. He does look a little bit lopsided or as if he's trying to balance himself. Yeah, he, he said he kind that. of played on that like a, like a gunslinger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, England spends like three hours per day in, in the makeup chair. Yeah. One day on set, there was a lull in filming, so he took to his trailer to get a bit of shut eye. And there was a mirror at the end of his bed. Oof. And when he woke up, a little bleary eyed, he sat up in bed and completely shit himself and wanted to staring back at him I'm in the mirror because he was still in full makeup. Yeah. And it's quite poetic that he's come out of a dream and he sees exactly. that vision yeah. as well. Yeah. Great. Karma. What <laughs> yeah. I find interesting was that initially Craven wanted someone older to play Freddy. And he had, mm. had in mind he would be an actual old man, so he did audition loads of actors in the 60s. Obviously, none of them had the youthful energy and dexterity that the role did demand. So yeah, yeah. he had to rely on Dave Miller, makeup artist, to make sure that England would look older with the makeup. But England, actually, he wasn't the first actor cast. It was someone famous for later appearing in Titanic, and it's not DiCaprio. Oh, it's not. Sadly, not Billy Zane. DiCaprio was a baby. Isn't that like Nightmare 4 where you see baby Freddy Krueger? Yeah, is that DiCaprio? Yeah, it's 4 or 5, <laughs> yeah, that's I think. DiCaprio. That's DiCaprio, That's yeah. DiCaprio. No, no, originally cast David Warner, who I'm sure we all love. Oh, wow. Oh, love David, David Warner. Warner. Yeah, love, love David him. Warner. And if you look online, you can find uh, actual pictures of him in the Freddy makeup because they've got that far down the line. Right, really? Mm. But, but as these things happen, a schedule conflict came up. Warner had to drop out. I mean, he was on... Like a popular TV show. He was on V. He was on V, yeah. Time, v yeah. Was, wasn't he? Yeah. And a really nice guy on V as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And during a break in between seasons, the only window in his schedule was for this tiny 34-day mm. period to shoot Nightmare. Right. And if you've seen him in V, it's a dramatic transformation from that to Freddy. Yeah. yeah. Craven said that Robert wasn't as tall as I'd hoped, and he had baby fat on his face, but he impressed yeah, yeah. me with his willingness to go to dark places in his mind. He said yeah. that Robert really understood Freddy. Yeah. Because he's really young in V as well. He plays a young young mm -hmm. guy, young character. Yeah. England said that driving to the audition, I licked my finger and put it in the ashtray of my Datsun. He said that that's an old theatre trick. 
Ash gives you a nice shadow under the eye. So I dabbed a little in there, greased back my hair and went in. He said, I looked very strange. Yeah. Did you not use the oil <laughs> as well out of the car, off the dipstick? You used the oil to grease his hair back. Yeah, Amazing. yeah. And taking a break from filming, the cast and crew went to a restaurant. England was in full Freddy makeup, if you can imagine that. A waiter took huh. one look at him, dropped his tray and ran screaming out the restaurant in absolute terror, <laughs> which, I mean, how do you allow him to go out like that? He just, Why did he do it? Yeah, I'm, You know what was going to happen. I'm just going to bring you a sandwich back. You can't come. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah you're not invited, yeah, you're not Robert. Invited. An iconic performance. Yeah. Unbelievable stuff from Robert England. Mm-hmm. Well, the remaining cast is a mixed bag of tricks. Obviously, yeah. you've got Johnny Depp in his debut role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of all the actors in the frame, Craven's teenage daughter and her friend picked him out of all of the headshots that Craven showed them. Yeah. They said he was beautiful. Well, they yeah. are. Which, fair enough. Yeah. When Depp came to his audition, he was accompanied by his friend, Jackie Earl Haley, who would go on to play oh, yeah. Kruger in the remake. Oh, wow, really? Yes. Nice yes. little twist That's of fate. Right, yeah. yeah, nice. Glenn was described as a blonde beach bum jock in the script, and he was stunned when he got the gig because he described himself as emaciated with old hairspray and spiky hair earrings, a little fucking catacomb dweller. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I think he looks great now. Think... Straight from the horse's mouth. His hair's fantastic. Yeah. Craven described Deb as greasy, pale, and sickly. <laughs> <laughs> Did he? Yeah. You're not going to need any of my daughter, mate. That's his practice. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that Depp is good, but I don't mm-hmm. think you can really tell that we become a huge star. No, no, not from that. Having said that, though, that hair will certainly take your oh, place. Oh, wonderful. So. Yeah. Not oh, surprising, yeah. really. Yeah. Bouncy. Oh, really bouncy. Really bouncy. Like yeah. Tigger? Yeah. <laughs> Before Depp was cast, Chuck Sheen had the part, but oh, got yes. the boot because his agent demanded too much money, around three grand per week, which was over double what was allotted in the budget. Did he have much purchase there to be able to negotiate three grand to double it? Just the family name, time. surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah probably, yeah, yeah. I can see that as well. The Deuce exude a similar style in the 80s. They've got a similar yeah. look. Obviously, Matt, you would have been furious because you're not well, a fan of Sheen, are you? No, but considering how he ends up in the film, I'd have been happy with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think this is going to be an unpopular opinion. Okay. But the one performance that I'd really do like is Nick Corey as Rod. Really unpopular, that like. Really yeah. unpopular. I think the character is an absolute dickhead and he's got no redeeming qualities. Uh, I think he's got a lot of screen presence and I think he's got a really great look and he can pull that leather jacket off with no top incredibly well. Yeah. I mean, his line delivery is wanton. I'll tell you that for nothing. Right. So here. you're talking on the acting part now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he looks good. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's got, he's got a movie star look. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. like the outsiders straight in there. Yeah, he's yeah. like the outsiders without the talent. Yeah, Without the talent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine it was Swayze in there. It would have been incredible. Nick Corey, his real name is Jesus Garcia. He wasn't the only name in contention for the role of Rod. Ralph Macchio was in the frame, as was Darren Dalton, who did star in The Outsiders, Westy, and uh, Red did Dawn. Macchio, yeah. Yeah, as did Macchio, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. So you can see where they're coming from. <laughs> Let's yeah, get yeah. someone else who looks like that. Let's yeah, just fine. cast the outsiders in this <laughs> Corey was a regular drug user at the time, and he was addicted to heroin and homeless before being cast. Right. Wow. Dramatic stuff. Mm. I suppose the two biggest names in the cast were Nancy's parents. John Saxon had been plying his trade since the 50s in a load of different genres. He's really memorable in Tenebrae, Black Christmas, and obviously Enter the Dragon. Yes, obviously. I've got such a soft spot for Saxon. And I think we all have. Oh, yeah, definitely. And Ronnie Blakely was the other big name. She plays Marge. Marge. Nancy's mother. 
Yeah. She was very well-known musician. She'd won mm-hmm. awards across the board for her performance in Altman's Nashville, which mm-hmm. is unbelievable considering she's awful in this. She is terrible in this. She's horrific. Second rate, let's be fair. Second rate. I mean, I'm trying to be kind. Tenth. She <laughs> yeah. constantly feels as though she needs to be out of breath to be able to portray exasperation. Mm. She's always yeah. like breathy. Yeah. yeah. Our best performance is going back through the window. <laughs> I think her best performance is when Nancy's trying to get out the front door and she's yeah. pissed and she's saying, yeah, yeah. locked, locked, locked. Uh, yeah. Craven said she was never happy with her look on set, which right. she constantly chopped and changed, which kind of accounts for her outrageous hair and makeup job. It never yeah. really quite aligns from scene to scene. scene. Every scene's different. Who is she? Yeah. yeah. But it's just such a surprise because I think she's the worst performer, unfortunately. I've got to agree on that, yeah. Mm, well, I don't yeah. know, Rhodes are very, very close. I think yeah. they're on a par. Don't forget that look, though. Don't forget that look, I mean, it's a Westy. solid look, but close your eyes and all you hear is, I couldn't even fucking see the guy. <laughs> <laughs> Flawless. Well, it's not the cast of The Godfather by any means. Well, no. <laughs> There's a lot <laughs> of fun to be had with the cast of Nightmare, with Heather Langenkamp as one of the great final girls and Robert Englund as iconic as they come as Fred mm-hmm. Krueger. Absolutely. This episode of All The Right Movies is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work and not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to all ATRM listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash ATRM. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ATRM. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of All The Right Movies. The Middle After Tina's death, Nancy insists on going to school for some reason. Probably around eight hours later, which yeah. is insane. Yeah. Take the chance of a day off every time. But we'll no. want to make it look like Halloween. Come on. <laughs> Rod collars Nancy in the bushes, pleading his innocence, but Nancy's dad has the jump on him and Rod is arrested. Mm. Our focus is Nancy at school, where we first see an encounter between her and Kruger. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Oh, this scene at school. Nightmarish, horrific, Tina in the body bag. It's an enduring image from the film for me, from any film, to be Mm, honest. Absolutely, 100%. And that's Amanda Weiss in the body bag. It's a real body bag, which was obtained from a nearby morgue, and she was terrified in it. I'm not surprised. For good reason. Yeah. And the teacher, that is Lynn Shea, who she's the sister of producer Robert Shea, but he's just probably more famous because she would go on to play the psychic in Insidious and have really disgusting sex with Woody Harrelson in Kingpin. Yep. Yep. There you go. From that. Yeah, about Mary classics. As well. 
Ape, yeah. there's some barmaid yeah. as well, yeah, mm-hmm. licking the dog. Brilliant. Um, oh, God, the dog licking her, that's dog, disgusting. Uh, yeah. It's worse than anything in this. It is. <laughs> and that guy who gets up to read in front of the class, he's called Don Hanna, and he is the brother of Daryl Hanna. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Don ah, Hanna's very brother. nice. Yeah. Craven went to Hollywood High to research the look of high school kids in the early 80s, and they read this passage out from Hamlet. Craven thought it was mm. perfect for this scene. I mean, if it mentions dreams, of course it is. Mm. Yeah, of course it is. Thematically, yeah. it says dreams. Get it in there. Yeah. <laughs> I love that when Tina gets dragged off, the shot of her arm flops back. Oh, yeah. Kind yeah. of yeah. mirrors the shot from the news footage where her arm limps off the stretcher that nice. Nancy is yeah. watching. Love that. Yeah. And then it's just turned up further with the no running in the hallway bit. Mm. Uh, this was This was horrific to me as a child. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense, but we're in the middle of Nancy's dream, and it's yeah. terrifying. Mm-hmm. I, I really love the set design with the leaves and the wind blowing. It's so yeah, effective man. and completely distorts reality because you do yeah. think that she's in class, and she is, yeah. but she's asleep, and you don't really know it. Or, or is she, or is she not? I mean, you're just all over the place. Yeah. It's horrific. <laughs> <laughs> that shot when she's, the body bag's lying and her legs just come up and she gets dragged out. Oh, my God. Mm. Yeah. That's an incredible like, it's an incredible frame. It's just, it looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. Them feet coming up and that body bag disappearing, yeah. that's the shot for me. Yeah, it's incredible. Like, wow. And there's a really great moment where she goes to talk to Rod in prison. She's had a nightmare. She's woken herself up. She realizes what's going on. Yes. And there's this really great exposition between the two of them where the, he's kind of given everything that you need as an audience. And like I keep saying, builds the suspense. He's had the dream and he's fucking terrified. Yes. Mm. And he's meant to be this hard guy. Yeah. And he's mm-hmm. just he's, he's like four razors. He was invisible. I just couldn't see the fucker. Cuts happening all at once. He thought it was just another nightmare, which is great because then you're going, well, that backs up that physical effect, how he couldn't move. And you can take the piss out of it, but what Craven does, yeah, he puts a bit of dialogue and goes, I-, I thought it was just another nightmare. I couldn't move. Yeah. And you can't move in your nightmares. And the soundtrack here is fantastic. Yes. It's really mm-hmm. pulsing. But just before this, you get her realization and her first encounter with Freddy and the way he steps out from behind that pipe. And yeah. it's just there. Ooh. And you're like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, no students allowed. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. great. It's just great. Yeah. Everything just seems to fit so well. And you're like, well, how can you make this for 10 pence? How can you scare someone for 10 quid? Did you just put a sign up saying nobody's allowed in here? Yeah. And you still go in. And Nick Corey was high during this jail scene. Well, that's obvious. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is obvious. I couldn't even see the fucking, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's Irish fella, is he? (laughs) (laughs) Langenkamp said that she wasn't aware of his habit. And she thought he was given an Oscar-winning performance because of his intensity. <laughs> wow, so he was, wow. he was still on the heroin during shooting? He was doing it in the bathroom between oh, wow. takes. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I did, I did not know mm-hmm. that. Okay. Yeah. Matt, what about you in this sequence? I know what you're going to go for, Matt. Just say it. Bathtub. Oh. We yeah. oh. hope we could skip that bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing you can pick any segment of the film that gets the same reaction from Luke every time. Like, oh, yeah, God, does, no. Yeah. Oh, oh, Christ, not this. Oh. Yeah. Even, when, even when we said New Line Cinema at the yeah. start. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the logo. The logo. <laughs> yeah, but I'm going to talk about the bathtub scene because I think even if you've not seen this film, you know the imagery of this scene. Yes. Yeah. And that tells you everything you need to know about how iconic it is. And it's a great setup because when are you more vulnerable than when you're in the bath? 
like yeah. probably never. Yeah. And I think the scene is part of like the great lineage who goes back to Psycho, making mm-hmm. people scared of being in the shower. Yeah. Then yeah. Jaws, making mm-hmm. people scared to go swimming in the sea to this. Now people are scared of taking a bath. Oh. And I think what the scene really emphasizes is Freddy can get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. Actually, Freddy's hand here, that's Jim Doyle, who we've mentioned being the effects designer. That's him doing the hand. Yeah. And yeah. The, they built the bathtub actually on two layers. So the whole thing was on the second floor of the set. And it was a tank around eight foot deep with water. Mm. Uh, they had a lagging camp on a false shelf. The effects guys were in the tank beneath. And then the underwater shots, they were taken in a swimming pool. And they did those actually the day after the wrap party as part right. of the pickups. Okay. And the pool was covered in black plastic. So the crew had to go down there with scuba diving gear to get the footage. And I mean, the thing looks all incredible. Oh, I mean, simple but yeah. effective. Simple Graven but really said, effective. I think we're all going to die doing this. This is the most dangerous <laughs> thing we've ever done. Yeah. Like it's pitch black Hardly down here. No one can see yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just adds everything to it. And I think also what adds to like the uncomfortable subtext is where Freddy's hand appears, you know, pretty much between Nancy's legs. You know, there's yeah. a real subtext there too. There's very and, much a subtext, yeah. And I think you also hear, you get like this really interesting interaction between Nancy and her mother. And I kind of wish it was explored a bit more, which is where Marge tells Nancy <laughs> that she's made her some more milk, which Nancy is disgusted by. And it's it's just this sense that Marge is still babying Nancy. Very much infantilizing her. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, like she's a little girl, not the 17, 18 year old that she actually is. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think like Freddie pulling Nancy into the water, again, the the line between reality and dreams is completely blurred. It's a scene that, I mean, it's just iconic for all the right reasons, isn't it? Oh, it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It really yeah. is one of the most enduring images from the film. And there's a, a film full of them as well. Yeah. This yeah. is right top of the pile. That film that Nancy is watching after this scene, and trying not to fall asleep is Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. Evil Dead, yeah. 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 This was a playful back and forth that Raimi and Craven had throughout their career. We explained that on our Scream episode a few years back, so if you would yeah. like to hear more, you can sign up on Patreon or Apple Podcasts for that. Mm-hmm. But I think we've we've added to the friendly rivalry between Raimi and Craven. The Evil Dead was a candidate for this show on the Twitter poll, but Elm Street beat it out, Craven nope. having the last laugh. There you go. Very nice. <laughs> well done, us. <laughs> big pat on the back yeah we added to that yeah movie law all yeah. the right movies law <laughs> after nancy's near miss in the bathroom glenn scales her house to her bedroom and nancy asks for his help she's going to go looking for somebody mm. and matt mm-hmm. you're going to take us away I do love this sequence, Nancy's mm. dream, trying to find Freddy, because I love all the nightmare sequences shot at night because that blue lighting, it's incredible. It's not overlit, but it's still oh. got clarity. It's yeah. so beautifully done. You've got the fog rolling the in. Fog which rolling again, in. Great. It's not OTT. It could have been, mm-hmm. yeah, let's really amp up the, the smoke machine, get loads in there. It's mm-hmm. just a yeah. little bit. And yeah. again, falls back on that classic thing of in your nightmares, you can never run fast enough. And it totally sells it here, you know, the camera like yeah. tracking Nancy back to the house when she's trying to escape. Yeah. And the whole thing of, of Freddie pursuing her back to the house, it's really intense. There's that horrible detail of Freddie talking to Nancy with Tina's voice and yeah. Tina's face looking through the window. Yeah. Just the smallest, yeah. like you could blink and you could miss it. It's so yeah. like quickly done. But once mm-hmm. you do notice it, it's like, oh God, that's absolutely horrible. Yeah. And that other classic nightmare detail, you know, the stairs being like that kind of gloopy marshmallow type thing, that's slowing yeah. you down even yes. more. And the sticky stairs were created for a mixture of oatmeal and pancake batter. 
simple right. but effective. Yeah. Yes. Stepping in that. Oh, yeah. So I mean, it's all that's nightmare 101 stuff, that, isn't yeah, it? It is. Really yeah, is. you can't yeah. get away from it. Running on the spot. Yeah. yeah. Happens Brilliant. every time. Mm-hmm. You know, this sequence just constantly plays up the real intensity of what a nightmare does feel like. And there's a sense Nancy is just so powerless and vulnerable. You know, Glenn's fallen asleep, so he can't help. Yeah. Fucking useless, isn't he? Yeah, he's <laughs> crap. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> crap. Um, <laughs> like the appearance of Tina, that's basically mocking her now. Oh, you know, that's what Frenzy yeah. is now. And, and I think this is like in Camp's best moment in the film, just selling the terror of this scene so convincingly. Um, mm-hmm. I do think once, you know, he slashes the pillow and the feathers are fine about it, it gives it a slight unintentional comic aspect, I think. Right. But what balances that out is the music. I think the mm-hmm. way the music kicks in yeah. here when Freddie pounces on it absolutely incredible so yeah, yeah this scene just really really intense i think you're shocking as well bringing yeah. like a, a reality to the dream sequences yeah yeah absolutely and i think that well the clues are in the imagery the centipede yeah. coming out of tina's mouth and mm-hmm. those rotten nails at her feet yeah yeah jesus disgusting westy what sequence yeah. are you going for here i think rod's death just shows how vindictive of a character freddie is in that he isn't killing him so everyone knows that he's being killed and he's proven a point. From the writing point of view, I think it's a really good character trait in that he's a really vindictive killer. He's not just mindless. He's not a mindless slasher. Yeah. He's horrible, mm-hmm. undermining. Yeah. He makes him look like he's hung himself. You know, and then there's this really great, again, I'll mention it, the suspense that's built through dialogue, the suspense that's built without it being a, a, an eye-rolling moment or a hammy moment, like, Garcia, I can't find the keys. Mm. But you completely buy that? You do, yeah. you do. Yeah. He wants the night shift because he wants it quiet and he's not going to know where everything is because he just wants a fucking quiet night. Mm -hmm. It's when the music just starts ramping up to this kind of pulse Mm -hmm. and this beat. Because he's so vindictive, it makes it even more scary Mm -hmm. because he could have killed so many more people and no one would have even known about it. Exactly. And maybe now's the time that he's just sprung out and it's become uber violent because, oh, these are the kids of the parents who actually killed him. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's done this a thousand times, but nobody knows about it. Yeah. And all of that's buried in your subconscious. Very so if he could do it, if he could do this, like what could he not do? If he could do anything, you know, and it's just the way that that's played out. The the one line that gets me in this, like, kind of like the whole film that really ramps it home. And it should be quite throwaway is when Garcia says, I oh, sleeping like a baby. Yeah. Don't mm. worry about it. Brilliant. That's terrifying. Yeah. Very good. Cause that means he's in trouble. Normally, yeah. That means it's fine. Oh, they're sleeping like a baby. Oh, it's fine. It's yeah, not yeah. a problem. Rest Even when easy. you've got when, and when you've got kids, oh, they're sleeping. Oh, great. The baby's just oh, thank God. And you can find respite in it. That's the one thing that you can't. Yeah. And the way that he's killed, and it's it, it's great from Saxon as well. The way there's no dialogue, and it's just a look between him and Nancy, mm-hmm. and it's it's not like he's dead, which yeah. would have been just really on the nose. It's not necessary. I think the makeup's just good enough to kind of pull that off. Mm-hmm. It's not over the top. It's just enough to show the strangulation which is great yeah and the thing about rod's death scene it was done years in reverse photography with the sheet wrapping around his neck and yeah. the hold it shape that there's actually wire inside it yeah i mean it doesn't look as though it's going backwards the footage does no it, it doesn't really doesn't and i want to talk about this next scene patient zero of my lifelong fear of this film the scene <laughs> at the sleep disorder clinic yeah right Marge is so ineffectual. And I don't think the doctor is up to much either because she says, what the hell are dreams anyway? Mm. And his reply is a massive red flag. He says, the truth is we still don't know what they are or where they come from. 
what on earth are you talking about? Yeah. That can't have been true. Freud was writing about dreams in 1899. And this guy, this charlatan doctor, gives this as an explanation. Yeah. Get Nancy out from under his care immediately. In a sleep disorder clinic. In well, a sleep yeah. disorder clinic that's specifically. His, that's, his that's, his, that's his answer. Yeah. I haven't got a fucking idea what the are, sweetheart. <laughs> But I think there are some good writing beats here with Nancy bringing the hat out of her dream because this leads the blocks for Nancy to conceive of bringing Freddie back out of her dream later mm. in the film. Yeah. And I think this scene really resonated with me because I could relate to dreams. They seem so tangible when you're in the thick of them. You can reach out and touch and feel and interact with what's there or you feel as though you can. Yeah. And being able to bring something out of your dream seemed plausible. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. a link to both worlds. And just for the atmosphere and the story progression, I really like this scene. There's some very good effects work on Nancy's arm with the cuts. Yeah. Yeah. It's miles better than the burn, considering the burn's in the wrong place for a start. Yeah. It changes. <laughs> yeah. Mimi Craven, who was Wes's wife at the time, she plays the nurse in this scene as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we mentioned it on previous episodes. Dr. King here is played by the great Charles Fleischer, mm-hmm. who Fleischer. plays Bob Vaughn in Zodiac. Yeah. yeah. Roger Not Rabbit. many people have basements in San Francisco. Def- and yeah. yes, the uh, voice of Roger Rabbit. It's outrageous. <laughs> it's outrageous. <laughs> what, what a combo that was. I know. Um, what, what a varied career. <laughs> yeah. So some intense moments in the second act of Nightmare, accompanied by some questionable performances. Mm-hmm. Some. The crew. The screenplay was also written by Craven and Craven alone, unlike some of the films that we talk about, which have multiple co-writers. Mm. Yeah. So it's a singular vision and our thoughts on the screenplay. What I really love about the concept is that it strays away from the kind of tried and tested slasher movie approach that has been so popular over the past five years or so. Yeah. In those films, the teens were in some kind of location where adult presence was not felt. It's usually some nonsense to do with a sorority house or a camp in a remote location. Yeah. But not here. The adults and authority figures are everywhere, but they can't help Nancy and her cronies in a dream. It's a bit simplistic, but I think it's genius writing. It taps into primal fears that everyone can relate to because Mm -hmm. everyone has bad dreams Mm -hmm. and the fear of being trapped within them. You have no control over them or your conscious mind doesn't have any control of them. So anything can happen in there and it does. Yeah. Yeah. Having said that, the adults here are pretty ineffectual. Tina's mother is just whisked away to Vegas with her boyfriend. Marge is constantly pissed, slugging vodka of a morning. Unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think... Nancy's dad's that much better. I mean, he's a copper, but we don't yeah. see him do anything great. And when Nancy's trapped no. in her own house, he does nothing to help her. Yeah. Considering he knows how messed up she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he jumps over that warning tape superbly. He does, doesn't he? That's so I thought beautiful. he was going to fall over. I love it. <laughs> I watch it constantly. It's a great look. I wish I could be that heroic. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> or at least pretend to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and be in that much beige clothing and still look great. <laughs> yeah. and i think what the writing does is rip apart the perceived ideal of this fairly affluent picket fenced middle america yeah and to go a bit deeper i think it speaks about society as a whole i think we're all paying for the sins of our parents and our grandparents and ancestors in one way or another Mm. climate change racism homophobia and we'll always be repaying their debts on those subjects Mm. so i think there's got a lot of subtext which craven writes in Mm. It is fantastical in nature, but I think Craven keeps it just on the right side of fantasy because 
it's fantasy that's relatable. I think if it occurred in some faraway place somewhere through a portal in Nancy's wardrobe, I think I would be less bought in. But everybody can relate to a boogeyman of one description or another because the majority of childhoods are controlled to a certain degree by the notion of the boogeyman. Yeah. And I think just the concept alone, it's magnificent. Yeah. Yeah. I think it falls apart slightly in the third act. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk about that in the third act with you fellas. Yeah. We'll see it then. Yeah. Fair enough. Yes. Matt, what are your thoughts on Craven's writing? I think what Craven has done here is he's written something that's very, very visual and really powered by the concept. I almost feel like he's storyboarded it first before writing. And that's what he showed to the money man. And they've gone, yes, make Get it in. that. Make mm-hmm. that scene with the girl on the ceiling. Make that scene with the hand in the bathtub. Yeah, blood guys, I get it straight in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like Craven went, well, what about the rest of it? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Make <laughs> that. Make those yeah. scenes. So the concept, incredible. All the kills, all the dream sequences, really well written, really hold up. But you do want more than that in the writing, and that's why I do think it is slightly lacking. Yeah. And in my yeah. head, when I was watching again, like my head went to contrast what Craven has written here to what he gets handed for Scream. 12 years later mm-hmm. by Kevin Williamson. You know, yeah. Yeah. there are some beats that are very similar. You know, you've got the boyfriend climbing in through the stairs. Yeah, it's very window. good. Yeah. Look at Scream. Scream's got really memorable dialogue, really funny dialogue. I don't mm-hmm. really think Nightmare has much of that, to be honest. Mm. Um, no. It has much more rounded and interesting characters in the supporting characters. Nightmare mm-hmm. has none of those really outside of Kruger, I would say, and it's down to the actors to bring something to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously a step above the likes of Friday the 13th and all those sequels, obviously, but without doubt, I would say the important things, the concept, the dreams, the kills, they've been really well thought through and Craven has really harnessed them with how he's going to put them on screen visually. But all the important stuff, it needs to rest on other stuff as well. And I think the stuff it rests on is, is quite lightweight. Yeah, I think those are... A fair mm. comments, Matt, to be mm. honest. What about you, Westy? What are your thoughts on the screenplay? For me, I think this is a very personal very and personal. incredible idea. I mean, some of the dialogue, absolutely, totally agree that it's some of it is a little bit throwaway. Hammy. But a lot of it is, is necessary. Mm-hmm. I think the whole premise of this feels very real and very on the line and just something that had to be written. And I think he's written it very, very well, very concisely. And there's no fat on it, like we've said before. Not at all. It doesn't feel like exposition. It feels like tension. That it's building okay. upon, yeah. upon something. And he's invented this character that is just so real in his mind. He's made it so real in everyone else's. I think the writing on this is probably better than 90% of other horror films, not just from the 80s, but everything since this. I don't think anyone else has had such a passion for a project where they go, this is what I want you to see, and has put that on the screen. I think the writing on this is really, really excellent because you have to visualize it on the page for it to come to life. Yeah. I think that's what he does. I think it really works. I think overall, I think the writing is very good and above most of the horror fair of the time, without oh, doubt. Oh, definitely, yeah. What's interesting, though, is that in early versions of the script, Kruger was a child molester, I but it was know. changed to child murderer. Unbelievably, because that was seen as being less exploitative, because at the time, there was this spate of child molestations in California. Right. right. But if you right. have seen the 2010 remake, you'll know that they changed it back in that one. So yeah, they linger too much on that as well. It's horrific. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the genesis of, of A Nightmare on Elm Street came from three very unique and three very different sources for Craven. You were saying it's personal, West Ian, it yeah. certainly is. Yeah, yeah, because Kruger, the name, came from a childhood tormentor because Craven was bullied as a kid by a guy called Fred Kruger. And right. Then, if you have seen, 
Last House on the Left, you'll remember one of the antagonists in that is called Krug as well. Krug, all right, Krug, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, okay. Yeah. Brilliant. The look of Freddy came from a horrific childhood encounter when he was about seven, eight-year-old, I think. Yeah. And he heard a noise outside. This is an incredible story. Uh, yeah. And one that I kind of relate to, even though it never happened to us. Mm. He heard <laughs> this noise outside, and he looks outside, and there's this, what he describes as a drunk, just shuffling up the street. So he heard the yeah. noise from shuffling, and he looks up, and he's staring at him. And he's like, right, so he backs away from the window and he said he's counting to 100, maybe 200. And he's just he's staying away from the window and he's like, right, he's got to have gone. I kind of hear him. So he moves back to the window and the guy kind of looks and then leers forward with his neck and just kind of stares straight at him. Ooh. And he's like, well, fuck this. Right, so he walks <laughs> back away and then he hears him shuffle off and then looks again through the window and he's making his way to the, like, the front of his house or the front of his <sighs> apartment where he lives. So he wakes everyone up. And he's like, what, what, what's going on? So he puts his ear to the door and he hears the front door open. So his brother comes down and starts causing a scene. And then this guy disappears. So he's like, all of this thing sat in his head. He said he couldn't sleep. So who is this guy? He looked like Freddie had the same hat on. Mm. He had the same menacing walk. He had the same kind of look. And it's just seared in his mind. I mean, you're like seven to eight year old and you get that. Nightmare That's fuel. always going to live with you. Yeah. Mm. yeah, amazing. How evocative. And the final part of the jigsaw for A Nightmare on Elm Street, this idea of being attacked and killed in your sleep came from three different articles over an 18 month period in the LA yeah. Times. Mm. This is an unbelievable story. The news covered stories of young Southeast Asian refugees who'd fled the killing fields of Cambodia with their parents and made it to America. Yeah. And these three fellows complained of horrific nightmares and insisted on staying awake for as long as possible for fear of being killed in their sleep. One of them even stayed awake for a whole week. Wow. And when he eventually went to sleep, his parents thought they could get some peace. Thank God he's asleep. Let's put him to bed. And yeah. they awoke into his screams at night. And when they got to his bedroom, he was dead. Jesus. And it happened to the other two people as well. The most bizarre, unexplainable circumstances. And Nancy's on her seventh day as well by the end of the film. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. You know, I'm reluctant to say it, but it's such a tantalizing story. It's horrific and tragic, but it demands more explanation. And yeah. it's almost mythical yeah. of the Elm Street legend. Yeah. Such an incredible concept from three really strong inspirational sources as well. Yeah. And to bring them all together and to make this, mm -hmm. I mean, it's to Craven's credit. Yes, it is. You can be influenced Without by a doubt. million things, but to make it happen, that's the main thing. Yeah. Elm Street was chosen as a name because it was the name of the street where JFK was shot. All right. All right. Okay. Craven said it was the street where innocence ended. Yeah. It is set in Ohio, but the film was shot in L.A. with Nancy's house located in West Hollywood. They shot in and around all L.A. Right. There was an Elm Street next to me, Nan and Grandad's as well. I always, always used to have to Terrifying. close my eyes when we drove past it. I was yeah. like, oh, I don't want to drive past it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> horrible. <laughs> and the discussion on the screenplay brings with it our third and final question from one of our Patreon supporters. Okay. This is from DG Barkles. Hello, DG. Hello, DG. DG says, the central concept of A Nightmare on Elm Street is still so horrifically genius, I don't think my teenage self has ever gotten over it from when I saw it as a 15-year-old. Well, try being seven. <laughs> I was going to say, rookie numbers, that. Rookie numbers. Yeah. I'll get those numbers up. <laughs> he said... Kruger coming back to hunt the children of the residents who killed them, but via the medium of their dreams around where their parents cannot protect them is one of the greatest horror concepts I've ever seen. Can you guys name other movies that achieve this level of terror concept? And yeah. a little addendum to that, he says, okay. 
for the record, this film scares the absolute shit out of me. Right. Keep up the fantastic work, you massive legends. Thanks oh, that. <laughs> lovely, nice. And he also asks, please, can you give a shout out to my mate Dan Smiles, who turned me on to your magnificent podcast? Of course. All, All right. Dan. Well, thank They're you for the kind for tribute. You, and hello, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Westy. Yeah. What do you say to that question? I say, yeah, it's a very good question and a very good point. Well mm. made. Uh, it is an incredible concept. The the best thing about a, a really, really good horror concept is the simplicity. And that's what this is. It's a very simple concept that's executed really well. For me, I would say The Ring is a very good concept. Watch something, you die in seven days. Mm-hmm. Boom. And I've watched, especially VHS, the amount of VHS I've watched. And I was thinking, <laughs> shit, have I got a week? Wow. And then you've, you know, you've got the classics. I mean, Hellraiser, there's a box from hell that's going to... I agree. Okay, fine. <laughs> the Exorcist, one of your kids is possessed. Nothing scares me more than that because mm. you just don't yeah. know them and what you're supposed to do. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you walk into the wrong house and shit happens. Yeah, shit does happen. Certainly <laughs> yeah. when you're in Texas. <laughs> yep. Yep. Very nice, Westy. All great choices. Mm. Thank you. Matt, mm. what have you got in your box of tricks? Yeah, well, I also went for Rain because that is such an amazing idea, especially sure. back it's then. It's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Late nineties, yeah. early two thousands. How many times did you lend you made a videotape or something? Yeah, yeah. So this idea that it's actually going to kill you in seven days unless you can pass that curse on, brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, Trains Martin as well. <laughs> <laughs> Just a different vibe. Can I borrow this? <laughs> can I borrow this? <laughs> Archie Gemmel. <laughs> More recently, I think it follows had an amazing concept. Mm. just the remorselessness of it you know it can change shape it can change identity but it's it magnificent. will not stop mm-hmm. and it yeah. just walks it doesn't run after you it will yeah. just walk until it gets you and i thought that film explored it brilliantly and then also i think the general concept behind invasion of the body snatchers but particularly the 70s one the philip kaufman one love Again, it yeah great your neighbor could be an alien you don't know because they look the same they act the same and they get you when you sleep absolutely terrifying yeah very good I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. This has got such an incredible concept. And the first film that came to my mind was Hellraiser, a film that you mentioned, mm. Westy. Yeah. I'm not mm-hmm. a giant fan of that film, but the concept of either, Pinhead no. and the Cenobites is kind mm. of whacked out crazy and pretty incredible. Yeah. Some of my other favorites, The Thing, Matt, I know I'm I'm talking to the right crowd here, Westy. Mm-hmm. I know you yeah. love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think Hereditary has got yeah. a really yeah. good concept, mm-hmm. really well executed. Um, the Descent, which is the only film that comes close to Elm Street in terms of fear for me. Uh-huh. It's got that double-edged attack of the monsters and the claustrophobia of being Oof. trapped. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That makes, yeah. uh, makes me, it makes me panic. Yeah. yeah. And finally, Don't Look Now, which is an incredible piece of work. It's a yeah. horror masterpiece mm-hmm. wrapped up in the grief of a family, which never allows you to really get a firm grasp on what has happened. And mm-hmm. I think the conceit of that has been taken on by what is now termed as elevated horror things yeah. like yeah. the witch and yeah. the babadook and things like that i think mm-hmm. yeah don't look now has got a lot to answer for in that respect yeah, yeah. oh definitely 100 <laughs> yeah yeah i think we can all agree maybe got some issues with the writing but overall mm. a solid piece of work and an incredible concept oh the concept's flawless oh yeah, yeah. absolutely now we're looking at the music. Very notable score by Charles Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Yes. Westy, thoughts on yes. the music? I love the music. Mm-hmm. And I hate the music. 
<laughs> Absolutely. The same as I love and hate everything about this film. I think Charles Bernstein puts an incredible turn in here. Yes. And he said, like, I don't need an orchestra. I don't need symphonies. I don't need anything else. I can do this in my house. And he did. <laughs> he did. All electronic music. Mm. And it's all electronic, very much like, you know, Texas Chainsaw in that respect and how it's kind of smash and grab and made just for each scene. Mm-hmm. But honest to God, there's some bits in this that you forget how good the music is. Mm-hmm. It should really pull you out the scene, but it doesn't. Tina's death, for example, is a really pulsating synth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just this, it's almost you could dance to it. It Mm. is when Nancy's in her first dream sequence in the school as well. Nancy's first dream Mm -hmm. sequence, and when she's like, it goes all John Carpenter-esque when she's making the booby traps. Mm. It goes really kind of dance synth. It's like, yeah, yeah, come on. And then when Freddy comes into the real world and he's like, oh, the booby traps are going off. It's again, it's got this real kind of vibe that everyone's trying to get back now. Mm-hmm. Wind and Reffin will be fucking losing his mind trying to get this kind of soundtrack. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just, but the thing that gets me for this is how creepy it is at mm. times. It's them two notes, oh. and then that and the one note just changes, and it goes back, and then it changes again. Mm. And it's, it's not a pentatonic scale, so you're not going to be familiar with the changes of it. It goes sharps and it goes flats, and it's and it's just enough to kind of throw you off without being out of tune. Yeah, and I think that's what he does really, really well. And it's the nursery rhyme for me oh, that sums it all up. What? And you bring that back, and you just think that's all you're going to remember from the film. But there's so much more to it. I think it's so thickly layered. I think it's so well done. I think he gave Craven so much to work with. Yes, and everything that Charles Bernstein delivered on this score is absolutely first class it's creepy it's pounding it's exciting it's terrifying and it's really understated it's really overstated it's everything you need from a soundtrack yeah craven falling on his feet with this considering he paid him a pittance by his own (laughs) admission there's 20 quid what can you what can you give us Mm. everything give you a masterpiece (laughs) 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 matt what do you think of the music in the film by charles bernstein pretty much as good as anything from his uh, brother elmer i would say (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my brothers aren't they your brothers sure they are um, they are now they are now I'll say so um, I really enjoyed the soundtrack I think it's really underrated actually oh, you know yeah, obviously people quite rightly talk about Halloween fair enough but this really isn't too far behind it for me nope. um, I really just love that little main theme you've got going all the way through uh. just <laughs> Another bit where you just go, oh, <laughs> oh. Sorry. it's just there, Sorry. though, isn't it? It's just so haunting. It's like someone yeah. following you on the tiptoes. It is. It's how it feels. <laughs> Very yeah. good. And there's one say, yeah. And then when they need to ramp it up, like the bathtub scene, like Freddie pouncing on Nancy in the room, that's really great. And it's just so ominous throughout, like when Rod gets killed in the police cell, just that bomb, 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 oh, bomb, yeah. bomb. Mm-hmm. Brilliant stuff. Loved it. I think it's one of the best horror movie scores ever for me, to be honest. And I think that Bernstein gets overlooked in that conversation of best horror movie scores. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. It adds at least a couple of extra layers of atmosphere and fear to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That main theme, like you said, Matt, and very, very evocative what you said, Westy, like t- somebody tiptoeing. It is, mm-hmm. it's quite it is. delicate, isn't it? It's, it is delicate, yeah. yeah. It, oh, it's quite pretty, much. isn't it? <laughs> it's quite <laughs> pretty, pretty little, didn't it? <laughs> It's called uh, Lick My Lap Pump. And <laughs> 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 um, there's just a couple of notes, but do, 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 do. it's just fantastic. They resonate so deeply with me. Yeah. And they have kind of like a mystical quality to them, which taps right into Freddy's netherworld. Yeah. They're kind of a bridge between the two worlds. Yeah. And in the music in between that, you mentioned that pound and synth stuff that really gets mm-hmm. the excitement levels going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But 
there's a load of moments that are just packed full of dread. Just when yeah. I could just visualize the bit where Nancy's cleaning her wound as blood's coming out of her bandage, and uh-huh. it's just what the fuck? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just horrific. And also, probably most terrifying of all, I woke up at 5 a.m. this morning, and right. the first thing that came to my head was, one, two, Freddy's coming for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I need some respite. <laughs> yeah. Terrifying. No word of a lie. That was the song that was in my head when I first opened my eyes. Okay, so in the crew, we can't forget Jacques Aitken's cinematography, as you mentioned, Westy, and Rick Sheehan's editing as well. But Craven's concept Mm -hmm. and writing, along with Charles Bernstein's incredible score, elevate the film to the iconic status it still holds. Such a tight film. Mm -hmm. It's brilliant. The end. Coming from the second act, Nancy is getting closer to the truth as she's into survival. She returns yeah. home to a fortress, though, as her mother has barred all of the windows. Absolutely. It's her yes. house. She has to protect it. <laughs> Little Home Alone reference there. <laughs> if you didn't get it, won't be the last. No. Matt, over mm-hmm. to you. You want to start this segment off? Yeah, when... Nancy has like the truth of Kruger's backstory revealed to her. Ooh. Every every one. Sorry, sorry. It's just deep rooted. It's so deep rooted, Smith. A dialogue scene like this, it it has to paint pictures with words. And I think it does do this really well. I think it's possibly the only scene where Ronnie Blakely doesn't embarrass herself. (laughs) Actually, then, you know, she's she's quite decent doing this speech. Yeah, 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 I think so. You know, she comes across as, you know, completely haunted by it. And you get, and you think, yeah, okay, now I know why she's a drunk. I can't get this backstory. And I do like the fact that when she's telling this story, it's when she's sat by the furnace. I think it just kind of adds something to it. The imagery. Yeah. The imagery is really good. Yeah. It's the moment for me where the dialogue really stands out. You know, I love that line about how the lawyers got fat and the judge got famous. Yeah. Yeah. Just tells you what this case was like. And, you know, no one really cared about the kids who'd been killed. Yeah, yeah, I like that. To be honest, it's this part of the film. I started to ask a few questions like, why would you keep his glove? Yeah. I mean, the, they're <laughs> going to be suspects number one. in the. Ooh, yeah. Who who do you think has burned the child murderer to death? Do you think could be the parents? Do you think we should go around yeah. and question them? I mean, yeah. if you don't and keep the glove. glove fairly unscathed from the fire? Yeah. In the if furnace seem, as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just keep it in there. Yeah, just keep it there. I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. I also think there just seemed to be missing an absolute key bit of dialogue here, and I don't know if I have missed something else. Why is Freddy coming back now? I was mm. waiting for that line, or oh, it's 18 years since we killed him, and you're now all 18. No, we don't yeah. get that. And you don't get it, so that to me, no. like, because obviously watched it a few times this week, that kept on getting, like, bigger and bigger in my head. Like, there just seems to be just one line literally missing to explain yeah. Why is he come back now? And I think that's a yeah. shame. But overall, yeah, it, it, it does explain the backstory really well. I mean, it still freaks me out, this scene. It, it is, it's just that Obviously. imagery of that glove and those knives, along yeah. with that horrific story that Marge recounts. Yeah, and basements are just scary. And next to the boiler and next to the furnace and the pipes and the... <laughs> a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> horrific. Well, I really like the telephone conversation between Nancy and Glenn. I love that these houses are clearly in the same 
location. You can mm-hmm. see that Glenn lives across the road from Nancy yeah. because it's all in camera in that wide shot. It's not it just is. pickup shots or anything like that. You yeah. love that? Mm-hmm. Craven said that the don't fall asleep line was the definitive line from the film. He said it could be interpreted in a number of ways, like culturally, philosophically, physically. And Langenkamp, her delivery of that line is so loaded with importance. Mm. There's a full stop after every word, don't fall asleep. Yeah, And yeah. she really sells it. Yeah. And there's no way that Glenn shouldn't be paying attention to that. Mm. He shouldn't be watching Miss Nude America. <laughs> to his eternal credit, I mean, he's a bit of an airhead. And if that's on and you're like, your lass is on the phone being like, don't fall asleep. You're like, yeah, yeah, I've yeah, got yeah, other yeah. things on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do something else. Don't worry about it. But it doesn't really work out because we know from that scene, a teen is right at the start that he is having these dreams. Mm. His cavalier attitude to these yeah. the, these instructions doesn't yeah. wash. People we don't, we don't know exactly, do we? I think that's a really good point, is that we don't really know exactly. But Rod, Tina, and Nancy all do. He's made suggestions that he does as well. Mm, why, yeah. isn't it, why isn't it coming after him? Mm. And we know that Freddie likes to taunt and he likes to play with his uh, prey before he bumps them off. Yeah. So it, that can't be the first time that Glenn has had this encounter with Freddie. Mm. During this sequence, there's some wonderful dialogue from Glenn's dad while he's yeah. supping some beers on the garden at the front. He says, <laughs> do you know what I think? Oh, wonderful. He's going to impart some wisdom here. here I think that kid is some kind of lunatic or something. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. That's his summary. After All everything that's transpired, very wise. <laughs> yeah. His reaction to everything's great. <laughs> yeah. That's the way you've got to do this. You've just got to be firm with these kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when he puts the phone down, I love yeah. it. <laughs> No bullshit. Yeah. And finally, uh, another horrifically iconic image in the film. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it's that <laughs> close up of Nancy's face and that cut to that disgusting mouthpiece. It may seem a little silly now, mm. but that blew my tiny little mind as a kid. It gave me, oh, no. it gave me the, the willies oh. something rotten. Oh, it's awful. And she wanted to take that home as well, didn't she, Aladdin? She did. She wanted to keep <laughs> well, it. Yeah, That's keep quite it strange, isn't don't, it? Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Uh, Craven said it was the cheapest effect in the film. I think it cost around $5. I think you can see that now. Yeah, you yeah. definitely can. Yeah, it's not yeah. great. Like, as shock a kid, value, though. Shock like, value. Bang. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, what the fuck? I think it's just the, the idea of the, the ringing phone that's being disconnected. It's yeah. classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, it's really effective because there's something sinister at the end of the line. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Westy, there's only one place to go from here. Yep, there is. I'm going to disappear into my own bed and then spurt <laughs> loads of blood all over the room. I'm going to go for Glenn's death, yes. which is um, beautifully done. I think it's an incredible effect. Yeah. I think it's so well played out, and I, I'm talking about it because it's a definite nod to The Shining, and it mm-hmm. has to be. Yes, yeah. it is, yeah. And yeah. it's so well played out. Even if this was like the first, like we've said before, the first death, the second, the last one, doesn't really matter no it's so well done and so well played out and it's just that zoom out the first time he's done like a zoom out in the whole film i think you get a close-up of glenn it just kind of comes out and you see the whole room mm-hmm. and you think oh it's quite serene because the zoom out is quite like oh, we'll yeah, set the yeah, scene yeah. and everything's calm and that's again going back to craven's direction and knows exactly what he needs to do with the camera and he pulls you into the bl- he doesn't pull you into it he pulls you out of it and you go ah and then the arms come up uh. and then he's in the bed and then he's just shouting of his mom 
Yeah. And awful. the TV disappears. That's and then great. The stereo disappears. Mm-hmm. I love that. And it's just, vroom, vroom, and it's like it's being sucked in with this vacuum. Mm-hmm. It's been brought underneath. And then you just do have that moment of just calm. Just that one. It's, it's a second. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah. And then this blood coming out, which is incredible. And it yeah. looks incredible. And it stays with you. And I think it's just such a wonderful effect. It's the reactions in this sequence as well. I think the way that. Glenn's mom reacts. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's one of Lannan Camp's really, really good reactions here where she's so frustrated yeah. and she just screams Glenn. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it just, just cuts just, to her doing that. Yeah. yeah. And it just mm-hmm. there's that there's that smash cut to her. Glenn! Yeah. And yeah. she knows that, oh for fuck's sake. And there's this frustration and there's this heartbreak. And his death kind of fuels her ending. Mm. It kind of fuels her character to go on and do more with it. And I think that delivery from Lannan Camp is probably the the best delivery in the whole film for me that yeah, really yeah, sells it great apart from like what got her the part was when she she made the the claw and was like yeah. and did that whole thing which is what she does with that little talk with tina Scree- at the start of the film yeah. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. yeah and it brings everything home and kind of bookends things so i think it's a really strong death even though you don't really care about glenn but he is like a really innocent guy in all of this mm. it's a great sequence it is a great sequence uh what isn't great is glenn's crop top I think he mainly gets all he deserves for that. <laughs> all right, so let's let's just backtrack a second. A crop top is a no go. A leather jacket over a bare chest is a definite yes. Perfecto. Okay. Yes. <laughs> we, know, we know where we stand with this. Yeah. Let's continue. <laughs> I like the line when when the coroner comes. Somebody's just shouts off camera. You don't need a stretcher up there. You need a mop. Need a mop. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> How grim. Yeah. <laughs> really professional as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yes. Yeah. Somebody's been butchered. What yeah. does the coroner say? Don't know. He's been in the John Pukin since yeah. he got here. <laughs> the coroner as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then Glenn's dad comes in and there's a bucket being placed underneath. Oh, my oh. God. The old pit from the bathtub scene was used again to pull Glenn into the bed. Mm. Yeah. And it looks as though he just disappears. During the meagre shoot, more than 500 gallons of fake blood was used. No more so than in this scene when Glenn buys it in, obviously, the more spectacular way. They mm-hmm. used the old revolving room set that they used for Tina's death at the start. Yeah. But they got a lot more than they bargained for with the inclusion of 80 gallons of fake blood, which was water and red paint. Mm. So the bed was on the ceiling, nailed down with all the furniture, and fake blood was poured through a hole in the bed. Yeah. Yeah, and the crew hadn't accounted for the electrical items on set either, and the fake blood ended up causing quite a lot of havoc. Craven said, Mm. I wanted the grips to rotate the room slowly so blood would run down the walls. But the room took off in an enormous spin from the sudden shift of weight, and blood went everywhere, and it actually ended up destroying cameras, equipment. It caused a power cut, and it nearly electrocuted everyone. Yeah. Wow. So, so dangerous. You can see that as well. You can see it tilting Mm. to an angle because you can see the blood going off at kind of like a left angle. Yeah. 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 Another contender for greatest movie death of all time for me, Mm. this one. It's up there. So with Glenn out of the picture, Nancy is on her own. Using her survival skills, she hatches a plan to take Freddy down once and for all. Mm. And I'm starting off by talking about Nancy, or Kevin McAllister, as she's better known. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Nancy setting traps for Kruger before she drifts off to sleep. Firstly, Kevin, Nancy, whatever, gets a lot done in a very short period of time. Yeah. She asks yeah. her dad to come and break down the door in 20 minutes, half midnight. In half that time, 10 minutes, she sets up very complex booby traps, 
okay. and pops her mother off to sleep, tucks her in and tells her a nice little story. Ten minutes. Yeah. Which only gives her ten minutes to get to sleep and find Freddy. Hmm. Now, if I've only got a short period of time when I want to get a nap, the pressure of that will mean that I just don't go to sleep. Yeah. I know it's a bit implausible. But I just love the fight from Nancy here. Mm. She's so resourceful and it's so exciting to yeah. see her setting up those traps, to see the fight in Nancy. It's an absolute thrill. But just when she's drifting off, okay, Kruger, we're playing in your court. Love that. Yeah, really mm-hmm. good. Fantastic. Yeah. And I do love the start of her dream. Nancy goes from upstairs to downstairs, then down yeah. the basement stairs. Mm-hmm. The glove's missing. Oh, oh, shit. The, the, yeah, the washing machine's talking to her. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Kevin. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> and then she goes down a further three sets of stairs in the boiler room. A real descent into hell. Yeah. That's great. Matt, what's your favorite moment from this scene? Just coming straight on on the back end of this, which is when Nancy pulls Freddie into reality. And yes, it's very home alone. Nancy going, come on, Freddie, exploding light bulbs. You just need yeah. clean film, feathers and a fan for the full effect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get that in his face. Yeah. Why are you dressed like a chicken? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why the hell do you take your shoes off? <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think this is quite unfortunate, though, because... Nightmare obviously came, came well before Home yeah. Alone. It's a massive influence, though, I yeah. think. It is. It the is. basement and everything, it's got a similar kind of look. I think we're kind of taken away from Nightmare's power. Yeah. In 1984, Home Alone didn't exist. No, so this no. wasn't just a knockabout comedy at home. <laughs> no. Set at home was Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is unfortunate. But overall, I do think this is where Craven starts to just lose the firm grasp on what Freddy can and can't do in reality. And yes, mm. we won't talk about the ending because is this even reality? Because he can't get through Nancy's locked door. He's stood there rattling it. But we've already seen he can walk through doors. He can walk through the prison bars. We've seen him jump through doors. With ease. With ease. And it just feels the rules have gone out of the window a little bit so he can get a sledgehammer in the stomach, which diminishes him a little bit in my eyes. And when he tumbles over the banister, I think it's kind of unfortunate. You can see the mattress that he bounces off mm-hmm. to break his fall, which is a bit, yeah. ah, that, that's where they just needed one more take. But what a love. I think the music's incredible. I think there's so mm-hmm. much inherent tension in Nancy fighting for her life. And the cops mm-hmm. are literally across the road, just ignoring her. Just ignoring all those cries, absolute idiots. But I think my favorite thing about it is when he gets set on fire, because that is proper good old school effects. Like back then, if you wanted to show someone on fire, you had to literally light them on fire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing is incredible. Like falling down the stairs at the same time. That stuntman had better been well paid for what he did there. That had never been done before. I think he got got an award for that, like in the Stuntman Academy or whatever it is. Like for getting up and going back up and coming back down. They were like, when do we put him out? Yeah. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Exactly. It just keeps going. Um, What I don't like though is I really dislike that shot of the skeletons on the bed sinking into whatever it's supposed to be. I think that's probably the moment in the whole film that's here. It's the least. Well, but then it saves Mm -hmm. itself because then I love the shot of Freddy rising back up through the bed sheets. Just that shot of his face in there. And, you know, it looks amazing. But again, it's at the expense of clarity over what he can and can't do here. And, you know, it's an incredibly tense sequence. And I'm totally sucked into the film, obviously. But it just feels quite confused about what we're supposed to be watching and losing that very clear grip on what's a dream, what's a reality. 
what can he do? What can't he do? And I know the answer to all this would be to go, well, you know, the ambiguity is what Craved intended. And that's fair enough. And it's definitely an interesting spin on it. But I think there's some things that don't quite gel here for me. And mm-hmm. I think if you've, even if you want to bring ambiguity into a film at this point, you've got to still have some kind of internal logic to it. You've got to have, you've got to abide by the logic that you set up in the first two acts. Yeah. In this for me, it just kind of goes, oh, forget everything, just have this instead. Which leads us very nicely, mm. Westy, to the moment that you're going to talk about. Yeah. Well, I'm going to talk about the ending, but I'm going to go, I'm going to backtrack slightly. Right? Okay. And just say from the moment that Freddie says that he's a boyfriend now. Mm-hmm. I do believe that that's the end of the film. Okay. Right. And Glenn's taken out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything else, she's asleep. Mm-hmm. What he's doing, he's just toying with her through all of it. None of it's reality. All of it's a dream. All the booby traps, everything's set up. He's trying to give her a little bit of a leg up. He's trying to show her that she can overpower him. That's why he gets up. That's why he falls down. That's why mm-hmm. he's just part of it. And he's fumbling around and he's a completely different character than what he has been. And what Kerbin wants you to believe is that that's the reality when it never really is. And the reality is always the power of the dream. And mm. that's when we go through the door. There's never a break. There's never There's a never stop. A break. Mm. And it always just goes from Glenn dying to then, well, she hasn't woken up. She's get me, get me down, asshole. And then our dad just magically appears, right? No problem. I'm going to wait you up here and do this. And, and just leaves her mm. in that room exactly. where her mother's just burnt up. Yeah. yeah. But so that you, just if, doesn't make sense. No. And she comes out and it's definitely dreamlike. There's that fog, the smoke. It's the first time it looks fake. Mm-hmm. It's the first time everything looks fake. Mm-hmm. And I'm just standing smiling, you know, uh-huh. and she goes out the side. Oh, I get, believe anything. <laughs> you know, I think I'll give up drinking. Yeah. I just don't feel like it anymore. Yeah, yeah. They, they say you bottomed out when you can't remember last night. Like how many yeah. last nights could she not remember? Mm. Do you know, know what I mean? And I think that to me really plays out in Nancy's mind. It's what mm-hmm. she wants to believe. She wants her dad to rescue her. She wants her dad to be the hero. She wants her mom to be taken away because she's mm-hmm. sick of her. She wants her mom to be taken away by Freddy. It's her, re- it's her kind of fantasy that he's mm. playing into by the end of the film. I think the whole third act is Nancy's fantasy and Freddy's playing into it. Mm. Craven wanted to end it differently but I think if you think of it that way it makes more sense because Craven wanted a happy ending Mm. with Nancy turning her back on Freddy defeating him saying that I'm taking away your powers and then cut to that end scene without you know the additions that Bob Shea did we'll talk about that in a moment Yeah. yeah But he structured it in a way that it's still a dream. It is, yeah. He And he wanted a happy ending. And I agree with you, Westy, about the I'm your boyfriend now. Yeah. She doesn't wake up from that point. It's all mm. it's all a dream. So yeah. I think that Craven's kind of lost a grasp of it. Maybe he ran out of money. Maybe he ran out of time. Mm. But maybe. I think it's a little bit confusing. I think it's just that Bob Shea stuck his beak in and wanted to change the ending. And I think that has worked in retrospect to explain yeah yeah i totally agree with that yeah i think just to clarify what we're talking about because we're only hinting at it really but there was this original happy ending written where the car drives away and it's just the kids singing the freddy song and that was it because craven wanted nancy to win and to prevail over evil but this is where bob shea got involved and said no let's do this darker ending instead yeah and i think you're right um to be honest he, he said i'd seen friday the 13th and some other films, mm. and there was always a zinger at the end, yeah. and there was no zinger here. Yeah, 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 it's true. It was done on the fly, and, and Craven was incredibly unhappy with it, mm. saying it was one part of the film that wasn't him. Yeah. And there were a few variations shot. The one that you mentioned, Matt, the one that's in the film as well. Mm-hmm. There's a one where the hood of the car doesn't come down, but Marge is grabbed back into the house by Freddy. Right. And there's a one where everything happens that we see in the film, but we also get a shot at the end of Freddy behind the wheel of the car. 
Right. Oh, right. That would have been shit. Yeah. Yeah. That didn't go yeah. Well. That's no good. No. Yeah. yeah. And Craven wasn't the only one who was unhappy with the ending. When Shay's dad saw the film, he said the ending was weird and that he should change it. So when Shay said he couldn't, it was too late, his dad screamed, you're going to fuck this film up. <laughs> so, I mean, come on. I actually don't think he did. I think his idea and the way it ends, you know, it might have been, it might not be executed fantastically no, with Marge dummy, yeah. being dragged through the window. Yeah. But it's it's blinking. You miss it. It adds to the mystique. Certainly, mm-hmm. as a young audience, it adds to the mystique of the film. Mm-hmm. But I think changing it the way it is at the moment, it fits perfectly with how Craven shot the final act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot to talk about, a lot to discuss. But one thing is for certain, mm-hmm. A Nightmare on Elm Street is one hell of a scary ride. Oh, yeah. Reception Underworlds. Not much was anticipated from A Nightmare on Elm Street on release. There were question marks in the editing room as to if Craven actually had something that he could put out. Mm. It was turned around in a matter of months after filming wrapped. Mimi Craven, as you said, Matt, Wes's wife at the time said, the first time Wes and I saw a movie with real audience was in New York. It was a very urban crowd and they were screaming at the screen, don't go in there, you stupid white woman. <laughs> we walked out going, okay, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And Wes should not have feared. Nightmare was an unqualified success. On a $1.1 million budget, it was a massive hit and it returned 57 domestically overall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Huge for a film that almost didn't get off the ground on at least half a dozen occasions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From a critical point of view, it was praised, but to a degree. The Washington Post said, for such a low-budget movie, Nightmare on Elm Street is extraordinarily polished. Mm -hmm. Variety said it was a highly imaginative horror that fails to tie up Craven's thematic threads satisfyingly at the conclusion. Yeah. Kim Newman, writing in Monthly Film Bulletin at the time, wrote, Craven emerged from his recent career slump with a fine, perhaps definitive bogeyman to back him up. Mm, yes. Yeah. Agreed. Totally. And now Elm Street has 95% on Rotten Tomatoes messing with the big boys. Yep. Sure. Definitely. And an IMDb score of 7.4 out of 10. Mm. Yep. Craven himself said that great horror films don't win Academy Awards, and Nightmare certainly didn't. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> Elm best Street picture. usurp and Amadeus as best picture. <laughs> <laughs> John would be furious. He was <laughs> but it did pick up a couple of nominations at the Saturn Awards. Nick Corey was nominated for Best Performance by a Young Actor. Wow. I second that emotion. <laughs> and the film itself was nominated in the Best Film category. Can you think what it could possibly have lost out to? So was Saturn horror films only? This is Best Horror Film. Best Horror Film 84. I don't know, Friday the 13th, Part 2, 3. Nope, none of them, none of them. No, no, no. It is a favourite of yours, Matt, Gremlins. Oh, of course, right, okay. I mean... Yeah, but you don't think of that as a horror film. I wouldn't think of that as a horror film. No, no, that's fair enough. Dandy haunting us. So, a very satisfactory and unexpected outcome for Nightmare on Elm Street. Critical praise, audience adulation, and some awards recognition to boot. Mm -hmm. Sequels and Influence. Where to start on this section? Firstly, the fledgling company that was New Line Cinema was fledgling no more. It went from strength to strength after 1984, in no small debt to the ever-popular Freddy sequels, and became known as the house that Freddy built. Yep. Yep. The character of Freddy Krueger was 80s and 90s pop culture icon all over the place. Mm -hmm. He appeared on WrestleMania, on the Johnny Carson, 
with the hip hop group, the Fat Boys. He has his own board game, video game, comic book, and line of action figures. Yeah. Too much. Too much. There was a short-lived but reasonable TV show called Freddy's Nightmares. The first episode is well worth searching out, not least because it gives a backstory to Freddy prior to being burned up, and it was directed by Toby Hooper. Oh, okay. Right. Very good. In 1991, LA Mayor Tom Bradley even declared September 13th, which is Friday the 13th, Freddy Krueger Day. (laughs) Right. right. It was met with a lot of criticism, naturally, considering his horrific crimes to children. Yeah. But it's certainly a reflection of how the character tapped into the cultural zeitgeist. It's still relevant now. My kids talk about it now. They're six and 12. Oh, my God. Really? Wow. still Freddy, Freddy. You know, it's still relevant. Wow. That's ridiculous. Yeah. England said, I was the Grand Marshal of uh, the Greenwich Village Halloween parade one year, dressed in full Freddy drag. He said, two phenomenal-looking girls in harem costumes came up and propositioned me. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that particular night. They wanted me to keep the claw on. (laughs) How could he forget? Wow. (laughs) So we know somebody made the most of their popularity. Two, right? And then there are the seemingly endless string of sequels and remakes, some good, some bad, some outrageous. Mm. Yep. And just to run down all of the titles, if you need a reminder, we've got Freddy's Revenge, part two in 85, Dream Warriors in 87, Dream Master in 88, Dream Child in 89. You can see the theme. Freddy's Dead in 91, New Nightmare in 94, Freddy vs. Jason 2003, Remake 2010. A lot to reckon with there, Matt. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the sequels and remake? Do you have a favourite? Um, I'm honestly just not the best person to talk about it because I've seen most of them, but probably only once each. I think I just kind of got it in my head. You know what? I'm going to go through the series. My main feeling is probably quite a cliched one. It just felt it got progressively worse to the point where Freddy was mm-hmm. just a joke as a character, just doling out the one-liners all over the and place. And that's where his success came from? Yeah. Like his popularity? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's where it came. Because he was like a mouthpiece. He was, yeah. The funnier one-liners. Yeah, and like Don and Shades when he crops up on a beach somewhere. And <laughs> that's ridiculous. So all that terror just dissipated, which was a real shame. I did go down a bit of a rabbit hole on YouTube where I was just checking out all the like individual death scenes. And there were some mm-hmm. good ones. I think the main one that stood out for me, I think it's from part three, isn't it, where the kid is the marionette and he's had his veins pulled out. Brilliant. And Freddie makes him walk off the top of the building. So that's great. That, uh, that I would have to say would be my kind of highlight of the sequels. But then you'd watch some others like he turns some dude into a motorbike and crashes the motorbike. I was just like, uh, Jesus, what what did this character like descend into? It wasn't I good. I know, yeah. It's, it's a shame, yeah, isn't it? Is, yeah. it? What about you, Westy? I watched them all because yep. I felt I needed to. Remember enjoying two and three? Mm. Sure. And then... I've really, really always come back to, actually more than this one, is A New Nightmare. I very think good. it's right, a yeah. really excellent premise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very meta, mm-hmm. and it really hits home how I feel about the original film. It feels like it's real. It feels like nobody else had control of it, and it feels like it just came to Wes Craven, it came to Robert Englund, it, it came to all of everyone involved. And the fact that everybody's back and they reasserted that mm-hmm. in my mind <laughs> was really, really terrifying and really scary. And I think it's it's not the the, the best executed film, mm-hmm. but again, I think it's the idea that Craven yeah. came up with. It's like he's seen these sequels. He's like, oh, fuck this. Let's take it back to the original and make it similar to the original, but make it incredibly meta. I think it's an incredible idea, incredible concept. It needed a lot of better acting in it. 
but I think you know from everyone who's in it and it's a really excellent follow-up to the first film so for me I'd go this and then straight in a new nightmare <laughs> and that would mm. be it for me right okay yeah um well I'm like both of you I've seen them all I only really love the third part mm. dream warriors right got a co-writer credit for frank darabont story credit for craven oh, yeah. i think it's got the best concept mm. it builds on the freddy mythology really effectively and has got one hell of a cast langen camp returns she's supported by john saxon patricia arquette larry fishburne yeah. some really memorable scenes like that one that you mentioned matt mm. the rest are pretty much outrageous not fantastic although the majority do have standout moments like you said westy new nightmare is very good with craven back in the seat yeah and acting as well he's Good chops. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Decent chops. Yeah. Yeah. I've recently rewatched the remake. Jackie Earl Haley is a decent Freddy. I've seen half Freddy. of it and I just was bored. I wasn't. I, yeah. yeah. It goes to some dark places, but you know, it's always going to be compared to the original. Yeah. And if you're a fan of the original, then you're naturally going to come out disappointed. Yeah. Just bored. Yeah. Mm, yeah. You know, I've got a soft spot for Freddy versus Jason, but part three is hands down the best. <laughs> Very soft. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, whatever you think of the sequels, they certainly were instrumental in giving prominent filmmaking talent their big break. I mentioned Frank Darabont, Chuck Russell as well, Rennie Harlan, mm-hmm. Brian Helgen, all got their big breaks from the sequels in one way or another. Oh, yeah, yes. that's right, yeah. And combined, nine Elm Street films have grossed over $370 million in the US alone. Not that's, too shabby. Mm-hmm. That's around over $700 million adjusted for inflation. Big numbers for something initially made on a shoestring with a cast of nobody. Yeah. So, hits and misses in the Nightmare sequels, but it is October, so a run-through of the entire series is not out of the question for me, (laughs) but the original is by far and away the best entry. It is for me. All the right movies ranking. When will the Nightmare end? We have one final section before you wake up. The triumphant All the Right Movies ranking. Mm -hmm. Matt, could we have your summary and score out of 10 for Elm Street, please? Yeah. You know what's been great about this? It's literally been watching you talk about it. Yeah, like, I know. I'm saying it. I'm the same. Isn't it a good thing we don't do YouTube anymore? Because you look, you genuinely looked ill for like the first yeah. 20 minutes, yeah. first 30 minutes. Yeah. This really pale. Like, honestly, when you weren't on the call, me and Wes were like, I don't think he's okay. I think he's going to pass no, out. Like, it's all right. right. Like, I haven't been okay. Have it's been, it has wrong? been tough. Yeah. And the, th- the, re- the real kind of snap was this morning when I woke up with that song in my head. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. I need I need some time away from Nightmare on Elm yeah, Street. I think you've. Well, don't it. watch the whole fucking series yeah. in October then. <laughs> what, can't what, stop yourself. Else? Stop yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it was incredible watching the effect on you. And and as a film, yeah, I mean it's iconic for a really good reason. It's got a killer concept, an incredible boogeyman for a villain, very underrated soundtrack, and the nightmares and the death sequences are so well done. But I think this also proves the difference between watching a film when you're too young for it and it sears itself onto your brain like it's clearly done with you, Luke, and coming yes. to it a bit later in life like I did with me. Mm-hmm. And it's not a right or wrong thing. There's no correct approach to judging a film. But I think you can no. only bring to it what you can, and I can't bring enough to this to get past some of the weaker performances, some of the okay. weaker bits of the writing, and an ending mm-hmm. where you really have to stretch the logic of it and kind of fill in the blanks to make any kind of sense of it. But none yeah. of that detracts from the place it has in horror history, so it's an 8.5 from me. That's, you know, understandable, understandable, <laughs> Matt. Not going to be my score, but I'll let you off. Okay, it won't be mine, but I'm going to give you a pass on that, Matt. Okay. Westy, what about you? <laughs> Wasn't a lover of the horror genre because of this film, and okay. it kind of put us off it for a long, long sure. time, many years. 
and it affected us for many years and it still does now mm. and um you know 40 odd years old and um, <laughs> 40 having a laugh 40, 40 odd <laughs> 40 ish i'm 40s yeah you know 40s it, but it did it, it sat with us and it settled with us and i think the film that has the ability to do that is something that's very very special but you know what there's nothing that is as good as this that i'd seen that it affected me as much and i don't think there ever will be and i'll mm. always turn around to people and say do you want to be scared then watch this film and if you're not then i don't quite understand where you're coming from and that's where i've got to sit with it and yeah. it, i'll always be scared by it no matter how old i am because it always mm -hmm. hits home and it has a very very clear message it's very well done it's not incredibly well acted but that's not what i'm looking for in this i'm looking to come away with a feeling i'm looking to come away with an emotion and i'm looking to come away changed and if any film can give you an emotion and a fear and change you in a way that nightmare on elm street does that i'm still looking for it so in this genre of film for what this film has achieved and what it does to people it has to be top tier and i give texas chainsaw massacre 10 on 10 and i've got to give this 10 on 10 it wow. is one of the very best horror films ever made and it always will live with me forever so fuck you freddie you've won <laughs> <laughs> wow 10 it's a big Full 10 for me. it has to be it has to be Full marks wow yes yes very nice Luke, that's yes, the only time you've looked happy in the last four hours yeah <laughs> <laughs> right well i said at the top and i think i've emphasized it throughout it's very important to me this film well not necessarily to me but very important in my life mm -hmm. for you know good and bad reasons i don't think that it's lost its power to strike fear and repulsion there are moments littered throughout that send me cold and are imprinted on my psyche. And I have struggled to remove my nostalgia and irrational fear of the film and give you something, you know, semi-coherent. Yeah. I hope I've, I hope I've done a decent job. Well, we'll check when we listen back. Yeah. We'll see you in the edit. <laughs> yeah. it's a, it can be saved in the edit, yeah, hopefully. Saved in your edit. <laughs> <laughs> Just be you talking for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that the cast are hit and miss. More more hits than misses, but I think kind of that can add to the charm and the fun element of it, if there is any fun to be had. <laughs> there are a couple of unforgivable performances, and the line delivery can sometimes miss the mark. But I think Langenkamp is great. England's off the chain, and Craven really deserves plaudits for this concept and for bringing it to life so effectively on screen. Agreed. Mm -hmm. I think it does sometimes struggle to maintain its power in the final third, and I think the writing does sag a little bit and it doesn't really know where it wants to go and i think it's just a happy accident that it's turned out to be a continuous narrative whole as a result of those changes at the end mm -hmm. but it is still one hell of a ride to see nancy go toe-to-toe -to -toe with freddie right at the end objectively i'd say it's probably a nine but i'm adding a 0.5 for nostalgia and good old time sake so it's a 9.5 out of 10 for me right interesting right and finally, we've had a lot of lively comments on the Twitter poll for Nightmare, which is where we pick our fourth score for the film. And here's the snapshot of the lively comments. Are you ready for these? Yes. Okay. LJ Human, at Luke Human, said the combination of iconic character design, philosophical premise, and Craven's keen understanding of horror make this an effective horror classic. 10 out of 10. There you are. Happy with that, Westy? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it chimes into what you were yeah. thinking, so that's a tick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that guy's right. Yeah. Sam Monks, at Sam underscore Monks, said, the only horror film that still freaks me out now absolutely put the shits up me the first time I saw it. I was about 10 years old. 
Understandable. Been there, Sam. I feel your pain. And oh, something, something very unexpected from Hellos at underscore Hellos, okay. who said Nightmare on Elm Street? Question mark. Overrated and cliche. I'd rated a three out of ten. Not worth the sleepless nights. Cliche. Cliche in what way? Yeah. Don't get that. So out of 10 chaps, A Nightmare on Elm Street, what do you think it averaged out of 10 on Twitter? Nine. Nine. Oh. 9.5. We can't change your mind. It ended up with a very disappointing 8 out of 10. Oh, really? I mean, I thought it'd be 10 all the way. 8 out of 10, very right. disappointing. Okay. I, I honestly, yeah, I mean, nothing's affected me since as much as No, this. me either. Yeah. Which means A Nightmare on Elm Street comes out with a score of 36 out of 40. I think that's a decent score. Very decent I score. I think it's done well for itself. Yeah. Think mm. that's a decent score, Westy? Well, that should be higher than that. I mean, it's fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, fine. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you really think? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You can see where A Nightmare on Elm Street ranks against all the other films that we've talked about on the show. Go to alltherightmovies.com forward slash leaderboard. Join us next time on All The Right Movies. In two weeks, you'll be shaken and stirred as John, Matt and Westy are taking ATRM's first foray into James Bond mm. with Casino Royale, not the Niven one. No, that would be an unusual <laughs> choice. It would be. Yes, it would. <laughs> well, let's yeah. surprise everyone. Did, yeah. we put a num- did we put the year on it? <laughs> we didn't, Smooth we... comedy from 1967. <laughs> yeah. we didn't, let's do the Niven one. <laughs> you looking forward to that one, fellas? Yeah, absolutely. Huge character. Huge character, huge film. Mm. Our most recent Patreon exclusive podcast is on two Joe Dante 80s classics, The Howling and The Burbs. Mm-hmm. Yep. That came out last week. It was a one-sided affair, so yeah. sign up to find out which was our favourite. Yeah. yeah. You can listen to that immediately by becoming a director's chair to your Patreon supporter of all the right movies. As mentioned at the top, you can also get access to all of those podcasts mentioned and more. Have a say in the films that we cover and the scores that get. That's patreon.com forward slash all the right movies. You can buy our podcast individually if you don't want to sign up to Patreon. And that's on our website, all the right movies.com. Yep. And new, hot off the press, new in. Mm. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts Woo. for the whole classic podcast archive. Mm. Wow. Yep. Exclusive Get in there stuff. as soon as you like. Exclusive. Wow. Very much. Yeah. And for all the right movies every day, we're all over social media. On Twitter, we are at AT Right Movies. Lots of movie content going on there. There's clips, yep. there's interviews, there's behind-the-scenes stuff. There are threads going out. Like our podcast, all of our thread info comes straight from the horse's mouth, cast and crew, or is corroborated by at least three sources. So keep checking back for more regularly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Lots to do when you're bored at work. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. On Instagram and threads, we are at all the underscore right movies. On TikTok, search at all the right movies. Join our Facebook group, our YouTube channel, we need you to subscribe to that and like those videos. They go all the time. Yes. They're great. Yes. The four of us are involved. So if you haven't checked them out, then please yeah, do. Yes, please do, guys. And if you like the podcast, we'd love it if you could give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Five stars. I mean, that's our favorite rating. I mean, that's the only one to choose, yeah. let's be honest. We'll yeah. all be happy with yeah. Apple. Yeah, it's a Very waste nice. of time going lower than that. It is. It is. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't get out of bed for four stars. <laughs> And our website is alltherightmovies.com. There's a lot to keep you occupied, mm-hmm. a lot to keep you awake in between now and the next show. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that is a wrap on A Nightmare on Elm Street. Hopefully the experience hasn't made us look 20 years old. 
We're off to watch a spot of TV. Miss Nude England is on later. It is. Don't forget to come back for Bond in two weeks' time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much, guys. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs>